0: Poppy spoilers with your host, spoilers. DT2. What's spoilers. 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 up? Uh, what's up? What's up? DT2 Comics Chat here. Welcome to another episode of sloppy spoilers, we have been reviewing the Alien series and on this broadcast, we're gonna do Alien 3, oh my goodness. The tagline for that movie was, this time it's hiding in the most dangerous place of all. Hmm, we're gonna explore that. So let me welcome my co-host, welcome to David Nemesis Howard, what's up Dave?
1: Hey, what's up everybody, glad to be here. And I absolutely agree. This movie is the most dangerous place of all if you want to see a good movie. So
2: I'll just leave it at that.
0: Welcome to Steve, Shade Wing Sellers. What's up,
2: Steve? Uh, I would be doing better if I hadn't seen this movie. <laughs> uh, I hadn't seen this successfully, I had not seen this movie until uh, just recently and uh, I regret having seen it now. <laughs> uh, the third is always the worst to uh, quote uh, X-Men Apocalypse.
0: Okay, Steve is the most optimistic of us all, so if he say he saw it, it, that ought to tell you something. Welcome to Jeff, Dr. Fade Bracey. What's up, Bracey?
3: Oh, man. If only this had stayed hidden in the most dangerous place of all (laughs) and fallen completely down the memory hole forever.
0: (laughs) All right, so you can already tell how we feel about this film, us and many, many others. So we're going to start off with general impressions, as always. I'll start with mine. My general impression of the movie was from a fan point of view and from a, well, I'll just start with that and then I'll put on my writer's hat. From a fan point of view, it was uh, baffling to me. It was baffling to me because I I couldn't understand the decisions that were made in the movie uh, for what it was and by the characters and the flow of the film didn't just, didn't make a lot of sense to me. It was, it felt like a bit of an attempt to recapture what we had in the first one, just kind of in a different environment. And so, uh, you know, so I was just kind of baffled by that. And then the entire momentum of the previous film was ignored and reversed, which switched me into writer's mode. And this is one of the prime examples of what I a phrase I coined called spite right. And spite right is when people come along and they take intellectual property and they trash it on purpose just to anger the people that love it and this is uh, this came out in 92 this is one of the first and best shining examples of how you go from a film that was so good as jeff said on twitter it became its own trope it set its own standard a film that was so good that the lead actress got nominated for an academy award for a sci-fi horror film that like never happens a film that was so good that every film after it, in its genre, subgenre, in vain, has tried to copy it. You go from that to this. That's what you call spite. Right for all you writers, and when somebody comes along and they're so mad that your film was successful, and they want to try so hard to distance. So instead of riding the wave of success, instead of flowing with the momentum, they went in such a hard direction in another way until people to this day still scratch their heads over the choices in this movie. So we're going to talk about some of those choices in detail as we get in. But let me throw it out to my co-host. Tell me your just your general thoughts. Uh, Start with Steve.
2: Oh, yeah. Like I said, uh, I only recently watched this. Um, I kind of have a spider sense when it comes to bad and this one always kind of jumped to my mind uh in addition that i knew certain things like okay they they killed hicks and and nude in the early part and then ripley died i knew like basically like that but when i can't finally went and watched it i just realized like what an absolute betrayal uh this movie was and and honestly and it's not just me saying this Jane Jane hammer and actually said this was a slap to the the face to the people who were fans of aliens um, and i will also quote another lance hendrickson who called this movie nihilistic and and i have to say i was looking for exactly the right word to describe how this movie made me feel and that word was absolutely correct because this is a miserable movie this is this is a grimy ugly m- miserable film and it, it just it's it hurts to watch it it is not a joy to watch it and and for a sci-fi horror you know that you're getting no entertainment whatsoever and and it's just like so grimy and so awful you don't want anything to do with it that says something but it's also a film that has been completely messed up by studio interference i can't even blame david fincher for this he was dragged in at the last minute did the best he could with a mess with a script he didn't like and and believe me it definitely earned that dislike uh, the whole way through. And, and then uh, to be constantly messed with the whole way through uh, through various uh, things that the studio did. Um, it's absolutely a complete mess. And I, I don't ever want to see this movie again. It's just that awful.
0: Now, for those of you, when you hear us use the phrase studio interference, that's something that we bandy about often. If you don't know what that means, it means that you have producers from the studio or whoever financed you saying, we want to see this in the film. Whether or not it makes narrative sense, whether or not it makes sense to, uh, in terms of character congruence, whether or not it's going to help the film flow better, they say, well, this needs to happen. The reason that happens many times is because you have non-creative people making creative decisions. So they look at numbers and they say, well, this trends or this polls or people like this, right? So they think that you can randomly insert anything in a film, and that somehow is going to make it better. That's what we mean by studio interference. Well, this ought to happen, like, you know, it ought to have more romance, or it ought to have more relationship stuff. Or this ought to happen, that kind of thing. That's what we mean by studio interference, where they did not let the plot uh, happen organically. They did not let the character stay in character. But they say, well, this ought to do this now, Okay, And this is one of the first examples of how you can see when people that are not writers and not directors say, well, well, it ought to be this. That's in contrast to James Cameron who did all that. He wrote it and he directed it himself. That's why Aliens is so tight and Alien 3 is not. Go ahead, Nemesis.
1: Yeah, you know, I think nihilistic is just a great word because this movie really made me feel despondent. You know, uh, there were moments where I wish everybody had just walked out in the hallway and waited for the alien to come get them. That's how depressing this movie was at different times. <laughs> and honestly uh you know steve hit it right on the head with studio interference i was looking at the history of the script there's five or six different scripts over a number of years written by a number of different people the studio kept taking it and giving to other people and forcing them to rewrite the same script at one point the studio was trying to force a writer to make the alien a metaphor for aids because Mm -hmm. of the AIDS epidemic at the time, which is like, come on. I mean, how much are you going to put on this poor little film? They put more than they could and they just destroyed it. And they said they were doing it specifically because of the success of the other film. So, I mean, this is like the poster child for studio interference. And really that is my general thought is that this movie is the poster child for what could go wrong when a studio comes in and starts to put all of their expectations and all of their poll tested numbers and everything else onto a film and rewrites and everything else. You know, this movie before Joss Whedon's Justice League and everything else is the shining example of why, you know what, let the creative people do their things and you bean counters, you go count beans and give
0: the money and then
1: get away. You know, that's what they should do. And uh, this is why, because you get films like this if you don't.
0: Now, just to throw this out briefly before I throw it to Jeff. This is another example of what happens when you set a release date before you have a script. Okay? When you say, it's coming out here, and we don't even have the script, we don't even have all that stuff worked out, because we're going to talk about it in a few minutes about all the sets that they built and then had to trash and how that actually costs you more money, which baffles me if your job is to be efficient, with management of resources and the investment. And then you do things specifically that are gonna cost you more the production costs, you know, no less marketing costs. And I, I don't understand that. And uh, this also is what happens if they had waited this many years one and capitalized on what Jurassic Park was doing and given the script a little bit more room to be what it should have been they could have had the greatest threequel of all time. Just one year. This has come out in 93 instead of 92. We'll talk about more uh, about that in a minute. Go ahead, Bracy.
3: Yeah, uh, Steve, uh, <laughs> that's precisely the word I was going to use. Uh, if It had been pitched to me first. The first word that comes to my mind is nihilistic. Uh, this is a hopeless film. And from the get-go, it just steals all the hope away from you. Uh, this is the most aggressive deconstruction, devaluing of a series of what has gone before. Direct follow up to a, a very successful film I have ever seen since Rian Johnson got a hold of Star Wars. Mm-hmm. You know, like I've, I've never seen anything just this egregious until that point, you know, until the, the Star Wars sequels, that it seems like the sole purpose was to just tear down everything that was built up. And, uh, as we discussed, uh, in our previous film, uh, we discussed how like the, the happy ending was earned in Mm -hmm. the previous movie. Like they fought for it. They fought and they bled for that. They deserved it. And to just steal that all away is, is, is so ugly. I I can't fathom what the people were thinking at the time, how they thought this made it good. And I'm, and I'm not a guy who's against a, a nihilistic horror movie at all. Uh, when I look at movies uh, like uh, the recent *Hereditary*, or uh, *or Midsommar*, or uh, you know uh, films like *Martyrs*, or *Inside*, or uh, uh, *Von Trier's Antichrist*, I am all for some deep, dark, depressing shit uh, when it's appropriate. Uh, this you don't you don't go that direction after *Aliens*. That's not where we go. If you want to recapture the horror element uh as we had suggested i can't remember if we suggested that on or off camera last time uh you you build out the franchise ripley's story's done let's move on to somebody else because you know we all we all kind of come to see the monsters anyway because the alien creature is a very fascinating creation and so the, the, the level of studio interference, this this whole idea that, like, you know, like, let's, oh, I think this is cool. And then somebody else, well, I think this is cool. This is cool. You know what happens when you get a whole bunch of people who say, like, they think that's cool. And you just like, oh, okay, we're going to pour all these ideas in the movie. You end up with snakes on a plane. Now, I know some of y'all think that's probably a pretty entertaining film uh, as, a, as a bad film because they took all these Internet suggestions. And I know us being Internet guys, we say, like, hey, you know, we kind of know what's best. We don't always know what's best. Not even as fans. Or like you just, you got to have somebody who's going to take charge and 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 put things together in a proper perspective. And that's why you hire a director. You hire a director to do this, uh, to put forth the vision. You know, collaboratively between the writers and the actors. And you know, and it's okay if you got a a, a solid producer. who can throw in a good uh, few ideas. You know, somebody like a Dino De Laurentiis or uh, other luminaries like that. But when, you know, you take this newer director and you just uh, hog time and force him to do everything you want to do, you end up with a critical mess. And that's precisely what this is.
1: You know, you know what you just said? I I do have to throw in a comment because you just sparked something in my mind. One has to wonder, you know, they they had James Cameron and Ridley Scott for the first two movies. They weren't names even then, you know, and they became Mm -hmm. much bigger names. Mm-hmm. And then for this third movie with this messed up script, they suddenly grab a guy who's just a music video guy and give it to him. It's almost it, like the yeah. studio was like, yeah. "We wanted a director who's going to say anything." It's just gonna yeah, we, it yeah we, we yeah, we yeah,
3: wanted
2: yeah. exactly what they wanted.
3: We wanted director who's going to be cheap. We want a director who's going to you know do what we want to do. And here's mm-hmm. here's the point. In fact, Ridley Scott was asked uh, about directing this film, and you know he's like, "Well, I've already done this movie. I want to explore." Where the aliens came from, and then you know, like thirty years later, he finally gets that opportunity. Uh, so he passed on it. And even like uh, Rennie Harlan was asked; he was the next up, and Rennie Harlan was like looking at the scripts, like, "Oh no, no, no I, I don't think so." And that's how that's how they ended up with Fincher. Because mm-hmm. I'm okay. thinking, like, maybe some other big names were like, mm, maybe not.
0: Well, we're gonna uh, we're gonna dive into that, but I want to elaborate on my point I made before uh, a few minutes ago, and that is that. Remember that Jurassic Park came out early 90s, 93, and mm-hmm. Jurassic Park was the movie that transitioned us from practical effects, everything in the frame, to heavy use of CGI, because Jurassic Park was a mix. They did have a huge animatronic T-Rex and combined with CGI, but it worked so well. It was mm-hmm. the first time it was so smooth and almost seamless. And it made you believe that those dinosaurs were actually on the screen. If Alien 3 had waited just one year, just waited one year and incorporated that technology, think about what that gives us. Mm. That gives us where the story organically should have gone, which would be Ripley Hicks and Newt being a family and them going to the alien homeworld to try to wipe the aliens out at their source or doing something heroic to take their experience, their survival experience from what they just went through, solidify their family, but do something to strike back against these creatures, strike back against Wayland yutani Hicks uh, getting some type of closure for all the comrades that he lost in arms because you lose people in war, but he lost his whole company. Hicks was the only survivor, and then Bishop and Ripley, So, and Newt, that it survived all that time. So you can't uh, – it's the equivalent of an NBA, of an alley-oop, where your teammate lobs the ball up and they put the ball right over the net for you to slam it home, and then you slap it away. It's the equivalent of Rose at the end of Titanic taking the heart of the ocean and throwing that diamond in the water. Okay, They gave you something priceless. They gave you something that's never been done before. They gave you something that changed everything around it, and you just, uh. So if they'd waited a year, then we could have gotten something like an alien homeworld film. If Cameron could do all that with six dudes in an alien suit, (laughs) what could they have done with with excellent CGI? Changes the whole game one year, okay? So what we're gonna do now is we're gonna talk about script development, and I'm gonna throw it over to Nemesis. Uh, Let's hear about the different script ideas and all that, that we're all familiar with, but we'll all take turns. So Nemesis, you start, What did they do in terms of getting this this script (laughs) together?
1: Well, first, I mean, uh, you know, they hit up, uh, who is it, Eric Red, in 1989. So this is three years, you know, after Aliens. And uh, he had come up with basically what would turn out to be the uh, sequel to Alien versus Predator, where somehow an egg gets to Earth, and they mm-hmm. end up having Special Forces Marines doing a fight there. And then, like I said, you know, I'll, I'll let you guys, I don't want to take up all the air in the room, but. That was the basic idea: is that you're going to have that, and then it kept getting morphed. They they added steampunk elements to it. At one point, they did write the script for them to go to uh, the aliens' home planet and wipe them out. They wipe. They wrote one that was Cold War theme, and then scrapped that when the fall of the Soviet Union happened, where the these the Soviets in space take get the aliens, and there's a mall and stuff like. That. So I mean, it was all over the place, and then. <laughs> Uh, I just want to throw an end on this because I know that you want to talk about this yourself, DT, a little bit. At one point, they had this idea for a a wooden world in space with these monks and stuff, and they actually built the sets. They built the sets, and then they trashed that script, you know. But every time they kept bringing stuff in, and then late late in the development, they showed it to the actress Sigourney Weaver, who hated it, and brought her own screenwriter in to rewrite parts. And, like I said before, then they were trying to put social conscious elements in there. They wanted the alien to suddenly become a metaphor for AIDS. And it's like, you know, it's just a sci-fi horror movie. You know, it doesn't have to be all things to all people. And it was just like, you, you read, if you ever get a chance out there, go and find a documentary or even just go to the Wikipedia page, because that'll give you some good place to start. And you start reading the
0: history of this movie.
1: And you're like, this movie was doomed before they even thought about filming it. It was it was doomed.
0: That's right, that's right. In terms of a wooden planet script development, the very two first very uh, fundamental questions you have to answer is how can a wood planet exist in space? If it's spherical and we're gonna buy that it's a, a sphere like the Earth and the moon, how is it made out of wood and existing in space number one? And number two, how then would the, the escape pod penetrate that atmosphere because initially they end up saying there's a force field around it that allows it to exist as would in space. Well, if that's the case, how did Ripley's uh, crashed escape pod penetrate that force field? Okay. We're going to talk more about that too because they just threw out physics. They they threw out comic book physics. This this is not even sci-fi physics up in this mug. Go ahead, Nemesis.
1: Just to give you guys, everybody out there, an example though of how different ideas this Frankenstein of a movie happened, that Wood Planet was supposed to have these Luddite monks mm-hmm. that were there that hated technology. Well, the studio hated the monk idea. They liked the idea of the, the moody, nihilistic setting though. So they kept the monks, turned them into prisoners, didn't give them any crap to fight the alien with and then moved that on to the next script. So it's like, they, they just took things here and there and it just became a whole amalgam mess.
0: This is what happens when you don't have one vision and you don't trust your director or your writer to give you one coherent vision because that story is perfect for a side adventure. That story is perfect for a book, perfect for a graphic novel, perfect for a video game. Think about it. Think about Mm -hmm. a wood planet infected by aliens because some of the the concept art was you would see the alien's tail like a land shark. So like you see the, the great white shark, the fin in the water when Jaws is coming. You see the alien's tail above the wheat and above the grass
3: when they're on the hunt, kind of like a uh, raft. Which, raft. They do in, which they do in Jurassic Park later on, which was a great way to save money just by having dudes like running along with a tail on a stick. Yes. But it was very effective. Yes.
0: And so it- that type of idea, the wooden planet, the Luddite monks, the low technology and the aliens hunting in the field like land sharks is perfect for a video game perfect for a companion book, perfect for a graphic novel, but not Ripley's story. Ripley's story needed a conclusion and it needed a triumphant conclusion that even if it, you know, had maybe not the happiest ending, it elevated her because she earned it as opposed to what they did. Uh, Go ahead, Bracey. Thoughts on script development?
3: Yeah, there's a... Boy, (laughs) Like you said, like Nemesis said, there are so many things that go on. Like, uh, like we were discussing earlier, I looked into uh, things about like the special edition and the uh, uh, where are they calling it here again? Um, uh, the assembly cut of the film. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to find a copy of the assembly cut to watch. Uh, it only came out with a, a certain DVD package, uh, the 2003 one uh, quadrilogy package, I believe. Yes. The the differences in the script are pretty striking. Now you get a little bit of this when you watch the special edition. Uh, there's some interesting scenes that uh that help build the world, at the very least. Like uh, Ripley, uh, they don't go out to the pod. Ripley washes up on the shore. She's found on the shore, and then you you get a view of the very aggressive uh, mite-like creatures that they just call lice on this planet, which uh, goes into the uh, to the idea of like the shaving of the head uh they do do this in the theatrical cut in a in a way there's a couple of scenes where you you see insects on this planet and uh you only go okay maybe this is the the lice they're talking about you know a guy throws down a coat and you see a bunch of bugs go skittering everywhere but it, it made it much more than just a throwaway line it made it like something like okay this really defines it uh, you know you figure in this century why are, why why would people bring lice to this planet it didn't that didn't make sense to me. And uh, another thing that's missing is there's like uh, 30 extra minutes of this cut. And there's a lot more character development. And some interesting character development. The the character of uh, Golan, uh, we never see what happens to him after he's strapped down to the gurney in the infirmary. Uh, but you remember there's a part in the film where they go to, uh, the idea is to trap the alien in this uh, big vault room. Uh, they succeed that in uh, succeed in that moment in this version, and it's Golan who has developed this uh, religious, uh, you know, because religion is a big part of this film. He develops this even like this religion, religious fervor, uh, calling the alien the dragon. He starts to see it as a superior being to what they are. And after you think, like, oh man, what a moment! There's like we've we've got this thing, we've contained it. It's behind this this bunker that's six feet of solid steel. There's no way it's getting out. And he releases it because he's come to worship it. That would have been a far more interesting idea. And uh, we were discussing again before we started shooting about how, like, uh, he set us in this plant where everybody's wearing the same thing. They're all shaved head. It's it's so easy. I can't remember the names of half the cast uh, because they all look alike. And, you know, half of them are Cockney, half of them, you know, there's a couple of Americans in there. It's really easy to lose track of who's who. But in this additional material – uh, you get things that help develop these characters, help make them stick out in their mind when everybody looks the same and kind of sounds the same. And uh, criminally, the uh, the guy who played uh, number 85, his character wasn't originally supposed to be dumb. Uh, he was supposed to be actually a little bit more sharp and on point. And then they decided to make him like this kind of a, a dodo company man. And the actor was really upset with that. And he he fought against it, but obviously you see in the end, he like lost. And was so oh, great. You know, you can, you can sort of see his, his, uh, performance isn't really that enthusiastic. Cause he's like, Oh, now I'm playing a character as he's like, I didn't sign up to play this character. Now I'm being forced to play this idiot character. And he's not enjoying, it, you know, if your actor is not happy, he's not going to turn out a good performance. So there's, there's, there's a lot of things. And I, I think one of the most egregious things they did, because they did so many reshoots, because that was a, a thing that happened a lot in the '90s too, which is happening again now. Interesting uh, how we're having a lot of bad films, a lot of bad films, a lot of reshoots. Uh, the uh, you know the one moment of dignity they try to give Ripley after going through all this, after completely destroying anything that has gone previously, is you know she's going to take charge of her own fate finally, and she's going to throw herself into the molten lava or the, the molten lead. Oh, what do they do? They, they throw on a chest burster. That wasn't in the original cut. They went back and add that in, and this was so late in the game, as a matter of fact. Uh Sigourney Weaver, they had to make a special bald cap for her because her hair was growing back, obviously. And pay her and, some more money. <laughs> yeah, they had to pay her some more money, and like, oh, I'm going to wrestle with this thing, even though we know it comes out, it kills you, and you, you don't... It doesn't just gracefully come out. Do we not remember how Kane died writhing and thrashing, like... Uh, she would have no time to be like, you know, messiahic and like grab the alien as as she's falling into the uh, the pit for all of our sins. Like, no, it's it's so bad, so
0: so bad, so bad. So bad. Uh, again, this is script by committee. This is mm-hmm. movie by committee. I'm gonna throw this in and I'm gonna throw it out to Steve. Uh, one of the things that you're gonna have to deal with when you're a writer. This is why I like writing books because it's just me and my editor. Once you get into, once you get it professionally published, then you have to rewrite it based on what they say. Uh, When you, when you use the tail wagging the dog method, that means we're going to make a movie, we set a release date, we expect it to make some cash, so then let's make a film. That's not how you do it. What you do it is you take a story, a story, and you build a film around a story, and that will always get you the best results, even if it's not the story that everybody wanted. But when it's a tail wagging the dog, and it's, again, a cash grab or response to popularity, if you do it any other way, this is how you get this kind of mess. Go ahead, Steve, thoughts on script development.
2: Yeah, or lack thereof in this case. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I would say, yeah, I'm kind of in agreement with all of you guys. This this, this whole thing was a comedy of errors from start to finish uh, with the whole process. Um, I will talk a little bit about one of the versions, um, which is one that was done by William Gibson. And if you don't know who William Gibson is, he is the father of cyberpunk and steampunk. Okay, They brought him in to do a draft, and it was actually uh, apparently one of the more faithful drafts uh, to Aliens. Uh, Because what they wanted to do was to do a story focusing mainly on Hicks and Bishop uh, with uh, Ripley kind of in the background. And the Mm -hmm. reason Ripley was in the background was because Sigourney Weaver didn't want to be the lead anymore. She wanted to distance herself uh from uh being the lead in the movie so th- they, they had this whole draft based on them and then that that was the one that uh, Nemesis said uh, was basically uh gotten rid of because of the cold war because what they wanted to do is they wanted to do a story where they fight space communists uh so they go <laughs> and fight the space communists and then and then they go and team up and they fight the aliens and uh that would have been an interesting story I would have loved to see that and in fact that version um, has become like an audio drama and a, mm-hmm. a comic book from Dark Horse. So, if you want to see what they wanted to do, you can. Uh, so, you, you can. I, I'm actually kind of curious now because I want to <laughs> see what they what would, what would have done because it would have imaginably been, been better than this movie. Um, and, and everything about this gone a mess. And, you know, Sigourney wasn't happy with it either because, she you know, she was forced back into the lead. Uh, she wasn't told that she was. And then they had to pay her for this. They had to pay her to take her hair off. Uh, all, all of this, and um, you know, and they killed all these characters that they that they had wanted to uh, take in the lead instead. So, and it ended up being that nobody was happy uh, whatsoever, not the actors. And and I agree with you, Jeff. Like a lot of these actors were completely wasted, and they were interchangeable uh, because of the way that they shaved the heads and and all this other thing. And I will tell you one other. Uh, actor, the guy that you mentioned that played the Gola character was played by Paul McGann and yeah. Doctor who fans know who Paul McGann is because he is the eighth doctor. Uh, he was the one that was in the TV movie uh, and he ended up making a big, big uh, splash um, in the audio dramas of doctor who from the eighth doctor. Uh, so doctor who fans are really big fan of this guy. Uh, and, but you don't know that it was Paul McGann unless you were, unless you knew he was in and he was looking for it because he's under all that makeup. He looks indistinguishable from everybody else, and and the and the whole thing is a mess. And uh, there is also a character that uh was played by uh the a guy from zardoz you wouldn't know that he was in this movie either he literally was Zardos and he was in this movie uh, and i had to find this out only because i saw the guy's name in the credits and i was trying to remember who he was uh so yeah you know, all these characters play you know never got a, a time of day because of all the script rewrites uh you know and you and and all these things that were cut and added in uh hardly anybody really got a chance to shine um, you know, and and on top of that, on top of the script woes, there were editing woes because Fincher didn't even want to edit it. And after the mess that he had been through through this movie, I do not blame him. Uh, so everything, everything is a complete disaster from multiple script writers uh, to people editing on the script and editing on the film uh, and doing it incompetently and not the way that Fincher probably would have intended to have done it if he had bothered to do it. So yeah, this is this complete is a complete disaster of a film. What
1: I find really interesting about the William Gibson version of the script is yeah. that they took William Gibson's setting and mm-hmm. used that setting for Alien: Isolation, in the game, which was much much better. That mm-hmm. that's actually a better Alien Three uh, that, than
2: anything that we saw.
1: Where that movie was supposed to take place, that version of Alien Three is exactly what you. Where you are in Alien Isolation, which is which yeah. is fascinating
3: to me. So, okay, yeah, I would yeah. I would have totally enjoyed Alien Isolation in the theater if it was like a yeah. prequel. You know, like, you know, you know, uh, Ripley's daughter trying to find her. You know, that's a great idea.
0: No, definitely great. Now, which leads me to this point I want to make before we go to the next thing. You hear me say this all the time on Twitter, and this is why I say it over and over and over again, because I want you to remember that truth doesn't change and truth doesn't age. Truth is not subjective. Truth is objective. It's outside of you. Okay? I'm saying that to say this. There's nothing wrong with new vision and new takes, but every vision isn't the right vision. And every take isn't the right take for the IP. You've got to have people that instinctively, instinctually know how to marry the right take with the right setting because it's not that these ideas were bad. They would have worked better for different lead characters, and they would have worked better for different mediums. And we've talked about how they did show up eventually (laughs) in different mediums and work as video games and novels, but not Ripley's story. So let's dive into specifics. This next section, we're going to talk about the basic setup of how the alien gets involved, Okay, Because everything about it is head-scratching. So, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff we talked about before we started recording. First thing that I brought up was that there's no way at the end of Aliens, this is just another thing we let slide, that something that weighs as much as the Queen would jump on the dropship and the dropship would not register through its sensors, whether Bishop or Ripley felt it or not. You would have sensors on a ship to let you know you just picked up half a ton. Okay? So, how the Queen gets in the cargo hold of that ship. We just, that's just another one. We just have to let slide. But what we can let slide is when and where did she lay an egg or two? Which leads me to my next thing, and, and you guys will get into the details about how the thing because Jeff talks about it, about how it actually gets in the to crowd too. But my other thing after that is, if you watch the assembly cut, the original idea there was that there was such a thing as a face hugger Queen, a queen face hugger type. So, in other words, that thing looked like a bat with a serpent's tail. It was black. It was larger, and if you can see it in the assembly couple when they hold it up, it's bigger than a regular face hugger, and so yeah. it was distinctive in terms Webss of the the fingers. Yes, webs were red it was it was grotesque, but it looked like what a queen face hugger would you know burst out and turn into, which I thought was a brilliant idea. The reason I thought that was a brilliant idea is because it opens up the story world. It opens up the possibilities because that means if there's a queen face hugger, there's whatever else kind of face huggers might be a king one. They did that in the Dark Horse novels, a king alien, a male leader. So it's lots of different places it can go. For some reason, they jettisoned that idea, and so once again, it's head scratchingly frustrating. Like, why do you throw out all the good ideas and then you choose this this crap? Uh, so I want to hear you guys' ideas about. Just how the alien gets in this mix from the queen laying an egg or two to infecting Ripley in a cry or two to how in the world does this survive? How does this just survive re entry into the atmosphere? And you know, how come you know, just talk about all that because the details of the thing just hurt my brain.
3: Start with <laughs> Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm gonna reiterate a, a bit of what I said, maybe add uh, a thing or two here okay so it's very important when you're making a movie to show uh like you know the old rule show don't tell Mm -hmm. it's okay to have exposition that's fine but if you can show that's always the preferred mouth that this is a visual medium uh with you know audio included and uh there's another old adage and when it comes to film if it's not in the frame it doesn't exist so what information are we given in the opening credits we are shown we are shown there is one egg stuck to the bottom of the dropship. Uh, we have no idea how it got there. There's no indication of that in the previous film. Uh, my only supposition is, is like uh, the Alien Queen has four arms, uh, two of them small, almost vestigial, but still useful. Uh, perhaps, and, and, and this is something we shouldn't, as the audience, be doing. We should not have, have to be doing the work of the film. We should not have to be explaining for the film. The film should be telling us. So now I've got to go and create my own little head cannon. We're like, okay, well, maybe when she was coming out, out of the nest, and, you know, Ripley had torched it, blown up, like she grabbed two eggs and uh, and took them up on the drop ship and glued them up there with the resin. But the problem even with that theory is we are only shown one egg. And this is the problem with a lot of these reshoots, because the film was chock full of reshoot. Because the studio was realizing uh, either through their own viewing or test audiences, like the people weren't liking this film, they had to figure things out. We've already discussed how there are so many changes. You know, like uh, uh, the 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 prisoners were supposed to have their own cattle, their own ox, and that's what the alien was supposed to attach itself to. They got rid of that idea, so then we have to insert a dog into the mix. Uh, so what we see is uh, in the opening credits we see the the chest burst or the the facehugger attacking the pod, and it's already breaking the rules established in the previous film. It's already breaking the logic of the series as is. Uh, we see it cracking the glass on the on the life pod. When previously we have seen that these things just kind of melt their way through stuff. We know they got acid blood. Uh, when it when it jumped on uh, John Hurt's character, it melted through his space plate to uh, face yes. hug. Yes. So now it's breaking glass instead of melting it. But then here's another incongruity. What do we see later with Newt's capsule? There's an acid hole on it oh so it, it burned its way into this one but it cracked hers like it i guess the queen's more aggressive i don't know and then when we have the inserts for the dog we see that there's a a, a face hugger lurking in the pod uh where did that guy come from it the the queen face hugger lays eggs too like no uh no there's no logic they destroy their own internal established logic and they just they just forget about the rules they're just doing things to try and make things work. This is a, uh, this is very, uh, Rise of Skywalker, uh, way of putting together a film. I'm trying <laughs> to make things work now. We've had a lot of bad ideas, and we're trying to fix it on the fly. And unfortunately, it just doesn't work. Just like jettisoning the pod with no features to, uh, to land safely on a planet. It, it's got no retrojets, got no parachutes, nothing. It just crashes uh there, there's no survival in that they're all paced maybe the alien can survive because it's uh polysaccharide and silicon I- as far as life forms uh, it's far sturdier than humans uh maybe it's not affected by uh inertia uh it, it certainly can handle the vacuum of space but you know it does there's no logic to it
0: now if you guys have ever watched by you guys i mean our audience because i know my co-hosts have if you've ever watched how it should have ended the hizzy channel they have a great take on this, and I'm going to talk about two things, and they mentioned one of them. The first thing that they would have done, they would have swept the ship for eggs. Yes. They just fought a queen. So before you go into hypersleep, Ripley should have thought of that. Hicks should have thought of that. Bishop should have been programmed to think of that. Okay? There's no excuse for them not doing a, a, a shipwide sweep for eggs. You just fought a queen. One. But number two, when Alien 3 opens, the ship itself would be able to sense the foreign presence of eggs because of the weight and because of the chemical composition. That would have been like, this is not something that's supposed to be here in a hypersleep cycle. What is this? So it's nonsensical. Go ahead, Steve. Thoughts on how the alien gets in the mix in the first
2: place plot contrivance (laughs) there's no other answer for it this is just the outcome they wanted to have and they just you know bent the reality to make it happen the way that they wanted to which is exactly the wrong way to do it you know it doesn't happen you know with any kind of natural uh character impulse it doesn't come along with anything that they would think of you know because they're intelligent beings uh because i will tell you i had that very exact lot that you just said which is that, you know, why isn't Ripley going and checking every single inch of his <laughs> ship for alien eggs before they go into hypersleep? What is this? Like It, it made absolutely no sense. And yes, Hicks would have thought of it. Uh, Bishop would have thought of it and all that. Uh, of, of course, I, I kind of was thinking, realized, uh, thinking about it, that um, they would have had problems just getting the thing off of, into the air without noticing that the queen was up there. Because it would have been a, an extra drag. Uh, going up, so why are it uh, taking more thrust to get up to the up to the ship? Uh, somebody would have thought of that back then. Um, but again, you know, at least Cameron sold it because we had the emotional satisfaction of it. We, we don't have this from this movie. It hasn't established or earned anything. Uh, so, in addition, you have all that. Um, you have the question of you know why is Ripley conveniently the only one who survives? Oh yeah, that that that's wonderful. How is Ripley <laughs> even impregnated? I mean, we don't we don't see any kind of process that that would show me like how she would have gotten contracted this thing. Nothing, just nothing makes any sense whatsoever. And it's just, you know, they they it was basically they dropped a bridge on, on nude Hicks and, and Bishop, um, you know, just conveniently leaving Ripley alive with this egg, you know, because this is what the plot requires. There is absolutely, you know, th- no logic whatsoever behind any of this. Um, other than, you know, this is the outcome they wanted.
0: That's right, and like Bracy was saying, with the egg that infects the dog, we'll get to that in a minute, that also literally comes out of nowhere, okay? Go ahead, Nemesis, thoughts on how the alien gets in this mix in the first place?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I, I love that you brought up the how it should have ended because, to me, this movie should never have taken place in the first, you know, in the first <laughs> place, because a point number two. And To make matters worse in the movie they demonstrate that the ship knew that the alien was on the ship because ripley goes and interrogates the flight recorder through bishop and the flight recorder says alien presence and everything else so right there the ship would have taken some measures you know and it's up to us then to begin to find you know come up with our own reasons and I don't want to defend this film. So I'm not going to come up with any reasons to give you any. But you if you want to make sense of the film, you have to start coming up with reasons that aren't in the show at all to figure out why Hicks wasn't woken up, why there wasn't some sort of countermeasure, why Ripley wasn't woken up when they uh, saw everything, why something didn't happen, you know, because it makes no sense. Then uh like Jeff was talking about all these pods come down. These pods look great for having dropped out of space with nothing mm-hmm. you know, going on. They come down the land. Ripley's the only one that, that survives. For all I know, the face hugger, you know, broke her out of the pod and started helicoptering its tail around and <laughs> out of the ground or something, you know? It's like, I mean, that's as plausible <laughs> as any, you know? And yes, there's a second face hugger out of nowhere. It's no sense. You know? So there's all of these things that it just... Absolutely, make no sense. And then the one that that bugs me every time I've watched this film, and I haven't watched it that often, but every time, literally, is the fact that we have seen a number of people in extended cuts or in actual movies that have been impregnated with alien embryos. You know, and from the time that the face hugger leaves your body and you become conscious again to the time that that embryo comes out of you, and even later films, Alien versus Predator, the other Alien films. It's not that long a time. It's pretty darn short. Ripley's going around having sex, you know, (laughs) surviving attempted rape, you know, doing all sorts of stuff, punching people. I mean, how many days was she walking around with this alien And And the explanation from the fandom out there is, oh, it was a queen embryo. Well, once again, that may be true, but we're making that up. We don't know that for sure. We're just trying to explain the deficiencies of the movie to try and make it make some logical sense for us within the world, that shouldn't be our job. And and that is the major failing of this film is that they took the audience for granted. They're just like, you're gonna love it because it's aliens and any stuff that we messed up, well, you're gonna rationalize it in your own heads and you're gonna like it and you're gonna pay us for it. And it's like, no, we deserve better than that. We're fans. We want you to write stuff that's good that we're like, that's damn good. I, I wanna see more of it, not, I need to explain it away so that I could justify spending 1995 to take my family, you know, to go see this movie when it came out in 1995. Now you wouldn't even get in the door with a family for 1995, but that's a whole other story. So,
0: Okay. <clears throat> what Bracy described and what Nemesis just described. No one thinks that way, but suits. Suits are the, and Cameron knew that, which is why he made fun of them in Aliens when Ripley was trying to explain what was going on. Uh, nobody thinks that way but suits. We'll just put the branding label on it. And people just eat it up. It doesn't matter about the story quality. It doesn't matter. That that doesn't matter. We'll just put that brand stamp on it. It'll make us millions. No one thinks that way but suits. Writers and artists don't think that way. We have to actually create something, which is a good transition to, and this is something that Bracey pointed out to me, um, that uh, is a good transition into the dog alien, I said we didn't learn anything new from this film, and Bracey rightly pointed out to me that we did learn that the alien takes on the shape of its host. I kind of thought we already knew that. I guess I've been immersed in the story world for so long; it didn't yeah. register to me that this is the film that kind of solidified that truth. Uh, so, so let's talk briefly about the dog alien. First of all, do you know anything about one of the original scripts or the assembly cut? They wanted it to come out of an ox. The problem they ran into with that is trying to make an alien come out of ox kind of look like maybe a roided out bodybuilder with horns. It just looks so ridiculous. It looked more like a minotaur than an alien. So they trashed that idea and they went with it coming out of a dog. Here's my issue with that. My issue with that whole concept is that it is, uh, in terms of a narrative sense, inconsequential. Mm. Just because this alien runs around on all fours, as opposed to standing up most of the time, which it does stand up later on two legs, by the way, it's inconsequential. So it can stick to the ceiling. You're trying to tell me other aliens can't stick to the ceiling. Remember when we see Brett die, it comes down from the ceiling. There's nothing gained. That's my point. There's nothing gained by making an alien come out of a dog. Nothing. So even though we might have learned that it takes on a shape. If you're going to do that, the shape needs to have a significant impact on the narrative. But in this movie, it was like, so it came out of a dog. So it spent more time on all fours than it did on two legs. And so what? (laughs) After that, it didn't do anything different from the first alien that we saw in the first movie. Literally, didn't do anything new. It attacked people. It was able to stick on walls like Spider-Man. It attacked from above. It stayed in the shadows. It hissed. It had the tongue that, you know, shot through the skull. It had the acid for blood. It, you know, was smart enough to pay attention to its surroundings. There's nothing we hadn't seen before. So I'm like, if you're going to do that, it needs to have an impact on what you're doing. And so there's all kinds of ways they could have done that. Like, for example, they could have showed scenes of the alien tuning into their senses more, like sniffing, like a dog would, like hearing like a dog would, because we, as we know, there are no surprises with dogs. Whatever a dog feels, you know. If a dog is hungry, they tell you. If a dog is angry, they tell you. If a dog sees something that gets his attention, the mirrors go straight up and they freeze. So they had shown the alien acting more dog-like, like maybe hunting something and then sitting up and freezing like a dog would. Or maybe some type of advantage, like extra running speed. You know, the way a dog can outrun a human or keep pace with a human or whatever. But it's inconsequential to the movie. So I'm like, what was the the point of that? You know, nothing as far as I can see. So we find out that they take on the form of what they come out of, and then it doesn't mean anything. It also doesn't mean anything in the way it dies. Okay, it means nothing. So if the alien had come out of a hummingbird, it would have died the same way. If the (laughs) alien had come out of a giraffe, it would have been tall and dead. Okay, it didn't mean anything. Okay, so I wanna hear you guys' thoughts just on the whole dog alien concept and how that impacted the narrative or not. Start with Nemesis.
1: Well, first of all, I, I do want to say that I kind of want to see the Minotaur alien now because that might've been cool in, oh, the la- in a labyrinth, you
3: know? The concept, the concept arc, Ugh. Yeah,
1: I mean, <laughs> but, but you had something there. You had a Minotaur alien and a labyrinth and structure.
3: I like the idea.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on, that's gold that's gold right there. But okay. Either way. Um, yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I I don't know why they necessarily changed it. And, uh, leading up to this, I watched the, uh, I guess the extended cut that actually had it come out of the ox. It was -hmm. the same movie. It just came out of the ox. Didn't matter if it came out of the ox or the dog, still the same horrible CGI character with practical effects. that looked so much better than the CGI, you know? So, um, I absolutely agree with you, DT. It would be nice if it took on some of the features, even just one distinguishing physical feature, which they did later on. I don't think that, in fact, I'm positive these movies aren't canon to the Alien franchise, but in that second, uh, the sequel to Alien versus Predator, the the Alien that came out of the Predator. Yeah, it had had some of the physical features of the Predator. I mean, there, it, it actually distinguished that Alien that hatched as being one that came from a predator. you know. So you're like, okay, that makes sense. That's got some other things going on and it made some sense in the world. Here, just like you said, it, it really didn't register at all. And honestly, before we started discussing this, it never even occurred to me. It was like, yeah, I guess, but it's like, it, it's just an alien and and it was an alien that was done badly because the CGI was really bad. you know. I can't say that enough, how bad the CGI was, which goes back to your point about Jurassic Park, because uh, you you could, tra- you know. and this is the last thing I'll say, is that uh, it's a little bit of a tangent, but you can trust the Raptors, who are CGI characters in that movie, versus the Predator in this one, it's not even close. If we had had Raptor CGI on the Predator, and it's the exact same movement, that's the thing. The raptor movement in Jurassic Park is the exact same movement you would want for the Predator. Just put a different skin on it, and it would have been perfect.
0: Pitch perfect. So, again, just inconsequential, and was another missed opportunity. Go ahead, Steve. Thoughts on the dog alien?
2: Yeah, the thoughts on the dog I, I I love dogs, so I really hate seeing dogs get turned into aliens like that. I hate seeing these kinds of things. It's just one of those fil- parts of the film that I have a hard time watching. Uh, but as far as the reason why they didn't use the ox, there was another reason. Uh, and that was is that they had a hard time handling the ox and making it look believable. Uh, they, they they had trouble with the, with the animal handling with that. So it's just like, okay, it's easier just to use a dog, so we're going to use a dog. So that was part of it too. Um, Yeah. And and on top of that, it doesn't even matter because it's like, there's a version of this movie where the uh, editing is completely inconsistent uh, in addition to the CGI problems. So it's like you have the ox alien in one take, and then the next take, uh, it is the dog alien. <laughs> it's just all over the place. Uh, and and, the, and they try to go so fast that you don't notice it. Um, it's just absolutely ridiculous. Uh, and, yeah, they don't use this thing to, to any advantage. I mean, the the other thing, the, and actually, I will find the dog um, a little bit more believable in this sense. Why would there have been an ox on this planet? What 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 in, in God's green earth w- would you bring an ox to this planet for? At least with the dog, it's like okay, the dog you want to bring, you know, because of uh, companionship or because it's a good hunter. Um, you know, you want it to detect threats. You know, there are definitely advantages of having a dog. Um, so the, the only reason to bring an ox is like, okay, you're making food. (laughs) I I, I don't get why uh, they would even bring that. So it's like, okay, I'll, I'll, as much as I hate seeing animal cruelty (laughs) on film, uh, I will tolerate the dog in that, in that sense, but
0: there's an extended opening. They're plowing. They're actually plowing with oxen. Um, It's a longer cut. So in opening, you see the, the one in the theatrical cut is very brief. And Ruby falls out of the sky and they follow, but in the, it's a much uh longer beginning. And you actually see them plowing with the oxen to explain the presence okay. of the oxen. And then they find her on the beach and so
3: it's much longer. But yeah, but so even radically. even that yeah, didn't make sense, sense because uh, you know, you find out they get supply shipments every six months. So they don't need to grow their own food. They don't need to grow their own meat. So this was this was obviously left over from the wood planet in the monks. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's
1: what I was gonna answer. That's what I was gonna say is that the whole ox thing was left over from the Luddites who didn't have technology, and nobody took the ox out when they're like, you know what? Now they're using technology, maybe they don't need ox. And so <laughs> the, the ox survived all the different script cuts. All
2: all of this shows the Frankensteining of this film and and just where the Frankensteining destroys this movie. Uh, It's just ridiculous.
0: And you're not starving if you have enough grain to feed ox. And you're not starving if you have oxen Mm -hmm. that you can slaughter for meat. Everything changes. You can just cook what you have. okay. And then if you know anything about farming, are they all male oxen? How do you get more baby oxes? What you gonna do when you got the baby oxes? In other words, you would have to have a whole system set up like a real farm to perpetuate uh, livestock as beasts of burden and a food source. I will add one other
2: thing. They would all have been targets uh, of the alien if uh, they had been around. If they had had like a farming area, all of these things would be things that the aliens would be using as hosts. Um, And yet we never see that. So it's clear that there was never any thought place behind it. It was all part of the Frankensteining process.
0: That's right. That's right. Go ahead, Bracey. Thoughts on the dog
3: alien. Now, you said something important there that I want to get to later about the aliens and hosts. Because none of that happens here. And that's an important part of the life cycle. Uh, when you look at the, uh, the the special edition or the director's cut of Alien... Before we had the Queen, we know that they still had a life cycle of some sort. Uh, so, well, like I said, we'll get into that later. But here, the dog alien. Now, I am a huge, ridiculously huge H.R. Giger fan. I've collected a number of his books over the years, including his books on aliens and his books on his movie works. And uh, it seems reading his notes and looking at his construction of the alien for this film, because he did design the creature, that there was going to be a purpose, DT, uh, for this thing to be built the way it was. They were looking at what they were able to do with the first movie. And they're like, wow, we developed this really cool thing and it's unique and nobody's ever seen anything like it. And so then the idea became like, but it's still a little too human. It's still got that basic humanoid shape. Uh, what can we do to make it more interesting? So the idea got pushed to like, well, if we put it into an animal that's a quadruped, maybe we can make more of a predator. Now, I don't think Giger knew that originally it was going to come out of an ox uh, because he designed it to be a lot like a puma. You look at the way it moves, it moves like a cat. And that's that all goes to a... Alec Guinness and Tom Woodruff, uh, who did the, uh, FX for that. They understand this kind of thing a lot. So he, he built it and, um, you know, the, the tail is much more aggressive. It's got a much larger spike on it. It, It's scorpions over the back of this thing. He eliminated the tubes on back because with it no longer being an upright creature, he didn't feel like they needed the back tubes, uh, for balance. Uh, this is a quadruped, you know, the, the head tilts all the way back where the the oblong head can lay over the back of the creature and it can move very fast. And one detail which I love because uh, Giger is all about the biomechanical that didn't make it into the final iteration. Instead of the the claws, the nail like claws that the um, the the alien has in the original film, those those steel claws and teeth. This thing actually had like knife blades like literal, like, like, uh, narrow, uh, not like leaf blades, but they, they had a little bit of a rounded shape to them, knife blades. And like, I think maybe he was really thinking this thing was going to come out of a cat for sure, because this would have been a cat. It, it Wolverine right out between the knuckles mm-hmm. and it's like, wow, that's a, a pretty cool design. Um, and as much as I love the, the work of, uh, amalgamated dynamics and, uh, Woodrow and Guinness, I'm not a huge fan of the design of this creature because they go, they start, this is the film where they start leaving the biomechanical and going to the more organic symmetry of the creature. It still has like some tubing and thing, but it, it no longer looks industrial. Uh, but it was very clear from their standpoint that they really wanted a fast predator. I look at the, the alien uh, drone in the first movie as a as a perfect ambush predator. It's it, it's like a trapdoor spider. This thing is smart. Uh, it can stalk you like a wolf spider. It can pop out like a trapdoor spider. Perfect ambush predator. It blends in perfectly with its uh you know uh, or uh, inorganic surroundings. Uh, whereas this thing uh, in, in the aliens we see like the hive aliens we see this. This bubbling mass of uh, army ants or the siapho ants uh, just really terrifying massive numbers. so here they created something that was uh, another solo predator but it was like you know the, I like the the analogy is like a lion on the savannah and where the where the zebra this was a, a fast elegant hunter that's uh, that owes a lot to a, a cheetah in a lot of ways and yet uh, eventually the movie just didn't take it to the extreme that it should have. These guys put a lot of time and effort into building something that should have been and would have been really cool and really impactful, and they just failed because it was a mix of three things. We had uh, Woodruff in the suit, and uh, they also did a lot of rod puppetry. Uh, So the guys who made the the suit and the rods, they all knew what they were doing. You know, Woodruff and Gillis and a couple of their other guys are like working it for some of the longer shots. And that was all fine. I don't understand why they decided at the at the 11th hour to stick CGI alien up on the ceiling in there uh, because it didn't match up with the puppet or the suit at all. And so every time you see it sitting on the ceiling and it's so clearly CGI, you know, it's, it's PlayStation. You're like, what? No. it. You just lose it. And so everything that could have been added to the film uh, by the... Uh, beautifully intentionally designed uh, of this creature because they were they were definitely following the uh, evolutionary path of form follows function. is just thrown away for the sake of like, let's make another scary monster.
0: Now, that thing you just described would have been 10 times more interesting, number mm-hmm. one, but number two, it goes back to the point we made in the last two reviews about how alien do we want the alien to be? See, there's room there if you're gonna go with the biomechanical art,
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, when you look at any of his drawings, what I always imagined was those were other creatures on the planet. Hmm. What I've always wanted to see is going to the original, original homeworld, not yes. the Prometheus and Covenant stuff, we'll get there, cause uh, not a fan. But if they had taken his portfolio and used it to populate a world, that the aliens come from. Can you imagine?
3: Can I can't imagine. imagine. Just the Especially aesthetic alone. Now, like if Cameron had gotten a chance to progress with this, look at avatar. James Cameron is also not just a talented director. You know, we know he's, he, he's got, he's special effects guy. He's an artist. And when you look at avatar, one of the things that blew me away, even though avatar is not the best movie ever, it's, you know, it's a, it's a couple of ideas, coupled together. But one thing that will bring me back to that movie again and again and again is the fact that he created an ecosystem. Mm-hmm. It is a beautiful ecosystem. And you look at all the creatures in there, and this this it, it all fits, man. He really, he and whoever else he was working with, they put a lot of time and effort into thinking about that. And imagine him doing that with an alien homeworld. Ugh what so a mystery. Now, well, so I now we at
0: ecosystems. And we're looking at Giger's art mm-hmm. and other creatures with that same aesthetic, which would make sense based on what we see in that first movie.
3: So I mean, he's, some, got entire, he's got entire paintings devoted to biomechanical landscapes. It's like you said, he has designed the homeworld. All you got to do is cast it in plasticine. You
0: know? That's right. And, but, but just the concept of seeing that, because once again, the name of the movie slash franchise is Alien. Mm -hmm. So what you could have done with it in terms of angles, in terms of gravity, in terms of water flow, in terms of because when you come from a place where you have acid for blood, that means that the mixture of gas has to be different. If they can survive in space, what if it's a no oxygen planet or what if it's mainly methane like Jupiter or what if it's a combination of gases that we've never actually seen. So we don't know how to terraform it. I mean, again. Yeah, but so what, if,
3: what if, like you said, like a Jupiter sort of plant where you've got the methane and what the intense pressures is what, you know, the it, it condenses the chemicals down to a point where they, you know, all the fluids are an acid because of that. And yeah, it's, not, it's not just the creatures. Now, you've got to survive a hostile environment like no other.
0: Right. And the gravity. That's what yeah. makes kal of Krypton able to leap tall buildings in a single bound because Krypton's gravity is so much heavier than ours. So when he comes here, like when we're on the moon. You just leap and take it, that kind of thing. So that's what I'm saying. The possibilities of a fully realized portfolio of giggers in a biomechanical world—it's mm-hmm. just—it's unprecedented, and it would have been a classic. It would have been something that we, uh, I did not even want to think about it because I'm so disappointed that we got this mess instead.
3: Well, I, I did read that one of the ideas, one of the reasons they stepped away from doing this. Um, was because cost and, you know, it's all practical effects. And Like you said, just one more year and mm-hmm. who knows what we might've had because that might've been realized because there's like, oh, there's no way we can do a whole planet full of these things and its own ecosystem and all this stuff.
0: Right, 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 right. So uh, anyway, so that leads me to the biggest pink elephant in the history of elephants. <laughs> we cannot not talk about Alien 3 without talking about when I'm finished, drop here, and that is the death of Hicks and Newt. And also we can throw in the ruination of Bishop because Bishop dies too, just later, not the same way they do. But in other words, uh, literally every survivor of the first movie is dead by the time this movie is over. Uh, Hicks is dead, Newt is dead, Bishop is dead, and Ripley's dead. And if that doesn't fly in the face of everything that Ripley fought for, everything that they set up her character to have something to live for going forward because her past was now 57 years behind her, including a dead daughter. And they just, okay. So we have to talk about it, even though it's, you know, you've seen me rant about it on Twitter dozens of times. Because every time this movie comes up, this is where, you know, they didn't have me, but they 100% lost me with this one. Michael Bean didn't like it. I don't know how Carrie Hinn feels because she's really, really kind of cool about it. And I she comes across to me like she's just so grateful as having been a part of one of the greatest movies on time because she never acted again. She went on to become a teacher and have a family and have a life and all that. So, But she's really, really cool. I just really enjoy talking to her because she's so down to earth. But nobody involved thought that was the right move. And to kill them off screen and to kill them unceremoniously, and on top of all that, I mentioned it before we started recording, one of the original ideas bandied about to the point where they had concept art and uh, figurines was to have the alien infect Newt but instead of it coming out of her chest, it would have come out of her head. So there's concept of, you can look it up online, you Google it, I'm not making that up, where Newt's head has actually exploded. It looks like octopus guts coming out of her head. It looked like if you if you took an AK-47 to Medusa's head and you explode that snake head, that's what it looks like on a little girl's body. It's grotesque. It's grotesque. Beyond belief. And what they did to Newt in the autopsy, I was telling uh, my colleagues before I cannot watch the autopsy scene. I can't look at it. I don't want to hear the dialogue. I don't want to hear the doctor taking, you know, the thing and scrunching her sternum. I don't want to see the co- close up of, of her dead eyes. It's spite right, it's spiting you, it's spitting everything you loved about the va- last film. We're going to trash all that right in your face. I can't stand it. And so narratively, it doesn't make any sense for Rippy to, to spend the entire film transforming into the person she needs to be. That's what we call a hero's journey to have her new family. And then uh, uh, Hicks is impaled and Newt uh, drowns in a tube, And you can see her screaming as she's drowning. The last thing they said to each other was, is it okay to dream? And Ripley said, yes, we can dream all the way home. And the last shot before we fade to black is them asleep. We know that little girl at some point, the cryo tube ruptured and she drowned in that tube. And we know that Hicks got impaled by one of the the slats in the ship. And then they tell Ripley this and she, I know she kind of has to get over it, But she kind of blinks and says, what? then she says, I need to see her. And then we go see her. And then Charles Dance saws that little girl open. And you hear the sternum cut as he takes a blade. I can't stand it. So on a narrative sense, as a writer, as a fan, I just have no use for them killing Hicks and New. And I I believe it's what Bracey and Steve said in the beginning, nihilistic, depressing, uh, never since talked about uh, when you watch this, it's just such a downer. It doesn't make any sense. I don't understand how they didn't understand that ain't the thing to do. Yeah, you want to spite us. Yeah, you hate Cameron. Yeah, blah 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 blah. How do you how do you how do you uh, sink your own franchise? How do you shoot yourself in the foot like that? How do you rob yourself of the multi millions you could have had just by writing a happy ending and then taking new characters and doing all other stuff you want to do. Don't get it. So I want to hear your thoughts on the death of Higgs and Newton. Remember, uh, they juxtaposed their death with the birth of the alien. So we're actually at the molten lead furnace and Dylan is saying a eulogy. Why are the innocent punished? And as they, you know, drop the bodies, he said, we release these bodies to the void with a glad heart. That made me so mad i'm like ain't nobody glad the actors ain't glad but (laughs) while they're doing that so not only did they have undignified death but they get dropped in molten lead so i guess it's instant cremation and that's when we see the chestburster come out of the dog with all the blood and guts and then the little dog alien says amen you know what that little amen said that little amen said i win the queen's laughing she's somewhere in space remember she didn't die She's on the vacuum of space, but she left some children on the ship. And when he stuck his tongue out, he said, "I win," because he did. So thoughts on the death of uh, Newt and Hicks start with Bracey, because I know you got some stuff to say.
3: <laughs> oh man, that's hilarious! I never, I never thought about that before. Like the I win. Oh man, I there's actually a part of that the cremation scene I like. I do like the juxtaposition between the birth and the death and um and this shows again there's there's plenty of stuff in this that shows the quality of Fincher. even when he's given a turd he's trying his best to polish it yeah. i mean the man the man works hard and this is one of the few scenes where uh i feel like Sigourney Weaver is into it uh, i think maybe she is feeling the death of these characters on a on a more personal level because you know you spend all these these weeks and months working with these people, and she's uh, she's as an actress she's I, I don't know if she's met there or not, but she had to to invest into this little girl becoming her daughter mm-hmm. and now she's got to react to the fact that these characters are gone. Ripley's life is destroyed yet again and that's one of the most genuine scenes in the entire film for me like uh, I, I think those tears of Sigourney's are pretty genuine right there. And uh, I, I like her reaction to uh, uh, to Dallas, not Dallas, uh, uh, Charles Dutton's character as well, mm-hmm. uh, when they're they're having that moment. Uh, but other than that, yeah, it's it, like you said. I understand the, the character's uh, supposed to be a pseudo-Christian character. And this is the sort of thing you would say at a funeral as a Christian. Like, we are, we are giving you up to heaven. So we send you off with a glad heart, even though we are in pain. Uh, you are in some place better, but this is not the movie where that's a thing. Even if this guy, I guess the character believes it, uh, but you know he doesn't know. But we know. We as the audience knows. So that's a big slap in the face to us. That's such. A-,
0: is a doctor's name. That's Charles Dance here. Clements. Clements.
3: Yeah. Uh, I know it's hard to remember. Uh, not not dance. I was uh not dance. Um. Uh, about uh dylan 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 I, I called him dallas by mistake i knew it was a i knew it was a d as well yeah dylan um yeah it's so like because he he believes that sort of thing uh in the context of the film but like but because we know more we have that omniscient view it becomes a real slap in the face uh just stylistically i i do like that kind of juxtaposition but then uh like you said it is criminal what they do to newt and it's it's compounded by something i didn't notice before when i first watched the movie and on a a couple of subsequent views until i watched it again today Uh, the age newt up from this film uh from the previous film where she was about like nine ish maybe at best Uh, yeah at best yeah i think they maybe called her a six-year-old in the film but like it's never confirmed how old she is you know, like uh, you know, Bill Paxton. So I was like, oh, we're gonna put the six-year-old in charge. You know, she gives him a little salute. That <laughs> uh, was great, great moment that there. Great. But they they say like when they're when they're doing like you know you know Corporal Hicks da 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 dead, like unknown female, twelve years old dead. And I was like, 12? 12? Why yeah. is she twelve? Does that make it a little bit more palatable when we're gonna split her open? Uh, does that make it a little bit more okay when we? Because it, it's not just a dummy. Uh, there's an actress credited as playing Newt in this film, uh, so we have a naked actress on the morgue table. You know, when Ripley goes to examine her, and we get like a, a shot of some side boob. Uh, obviously, this uh, this young woman was pretty flat-chested, so I'm like, uh, I, I hope that's just like a really flat-chested 18-year-old there, because that's yeah. weird that you would put that in the movie. That you're interjection, realistic. real quick. Yeah, oh. I, I yeah. knew
1: you. I knew you're gonna bring this up. I just looked it up. They recast Newt because Carrie, they said Carrie Hinn was too old. Well, what I think they meant was Carrie Hinn was too developed. <laughs> Carrie Hinn was born in 1976. The actress they cast, and this movie was shot in 1990 and 1991. Mm-hmm. The pre production started in 90. So Carrie Hinn would have been, uh, what, 15, 16 years old? The yeah. actress they cast, Daniel Edmund, in this movie is 14.
3: Oh, wow. Still, that's like a, uh, you know, it, it 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 still feels a little grimy to see a 14-year-old topless in a film even if it's just briefly. Yeah, that's exactly enamored.
1: why I I decided to look it up because I wanted to see what was going on. It was a 14-year-old. She was between 13 and 14 years old when that scene was filmed.
3: Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's kind of tasteless in my opinion. That that like flashes back to Brooke Shields and Pretty Baby. Just like that should not have been, you know.
0: Well, that adds an extra layer of disgust for me now because uh, yeah. I didn't know that. But now I'm like, really?
3: Yeah.
0: Really? Just not necessary. But, uh. Okay, go ahead, Steve. Thought Were you done, Bracey? Yeah, I'm done. Okay. Thoughts on. I have, the I death- have
3: spit of- my venom. The,
0: de- <laughs> the death of Hicks and Newt.
2: That scene makes me want to spit a lot more than just Ben. Oh, <laughs> sorry, there is that was yeah I'm sorry, I, I, there I, is uh, one, one more thing more. I, I wanted to say. I could not sit through that scene. I could I just could not do it. Um, for for just for a number of reasons. And on top of that, I don't even know why that scene needed to be dragged out. Why we needed to see This kid being cut up in excruciating detail, you know, why we had to see her, you know, uh, in all of her glory on the operating table. Why is this here? You know, it's like I understand what they're trying to say about Ripley uh, to the extent that, okay, you know, she is really afraid that they that she might have been infected by the alien. All that you did not need to show Newt uh, being cut up you know you didn't need to see the whole autopsy right there we didn't need all the gory details of all that you know they could have had their discussion about the about whether or not there was an infection or not um Mm -hmm. without showing a single thing this was gratuitous And it was disgusting. I cannot, I cannot sit there and watch that. Um, And 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 it's just you know uh, par for the course because it's the whole treatment of all these characters was terrible. Uh, You know, with uh, Hicks, um, you know they 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 kill him off off screen, and the only reason that the picture is there is because um, they talk with with uh, Michael Bean. And Michael Bean was just completely against the way his character was treated and with every right. And so basically it's like, okay, I will sell you the rights to take one photo Okay, and I'm going to make you pay through the nose for that photo. That was the photo that they used in the movie, and I'm like, well, I mean, I could at least Michael Bean got some well-deserved satisfaction for that because that was nonsense. He absolutely had every right to do that. Bean has actually (laughs) been—I was Bean's behavior off-screen when it comes to his character here has been more entertaining than the actual movie, so I appreciate him (laughs) for that. So that was terrible. Um, yeah, they, they, yeah, they completely mistreat Newt. Um, you know, everything that Ripley fought for uh, is completely undermined by this movie. The entire character arc that she had in Aliens was completely destroyed by this movie, and she is in a worse place than she was at the start of Aliens. Um, in addition to this. So you have uh, the fact that she lost her daughter. She lost uh, this guy that, you know, she had a good working relationship with, might have had a relationship with, uh, had things been allowed to progress that far. Uh, You know, she lost another friend in Bishop, um, you know, who she had learned to trust and and respect um, after her uh, trauma you know with dealing with ash you know so she finally learned to accept this 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 android as a friend after all that time all of that out out the window and on top of that you know she's carrying an alien queen in herself the whole the whole movie so she, there all the, the 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 whole movie was about her going from a place of trauma to a place of hope and moving on and all of that is completely destroyed because uh, these studio exec these hacks you know, dropped a bridge on these characters that we had learned to love for an entire movie uh, for no reason, no narrative reason whatsoever. It was all, we didn't want to pay these people to come back. We didn't want to give Cameron any respect whatsoever. So we're going to just, you know, kill these characters, and then we're going to drag them through the mud, and we're going to make you watch uh, through this horrific scene as, as Newt is, is, is eviscerated on camera for no reason whatsoever. I, I, I just, I despise everything about this part. And it's just, even if there are elements of this movie that work in, as a standalone, and there are. But, you know, the fact that this is, is, is touted as an alien sequel, you know, a, a follow-up. You know, it should continue Ripley's character in some way. And instead, it, it not only undermines her, but destroys her and everybody else that she has ever loved. That is, I, I just find the whole thing offensive. The whole, the, everything dealing with nude and Hicks and Bishop is offensive. And then, oh, oh yeah, and by the way, Lance Henriksen was in this movie. And we find out that, you know, towards the end, that um, he sort of shows up, but not really. And the way that he is treated in that scene... Mm-hmm. I, I just was—I was disgusted by it as well. So virtually every single way that they could—they could screw these characters over after we had learned to love them uh, in the previous film is just absolutely destroyed, and 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 it, and it just burns me up even thinking about it.
3: Uh, Bruce, something else you want to add? Yeah. yeah, it's it's the Last of Us two treatment of a characters yeah. like you've grown to love in a previous installment, and then you just want to like, you know, just just treat them so horribly it. it it, mm-hmm. it's baffling that anybody would do that. Baffling.
0: At some point, and we all know this because we talk about it every day on Twitter. At some point, content creators turned on the fans. I don't know of any other industry that even tries to function with that model because it is nonsensical. <laughs> but at some point, content creators of all the franchises that we love they either hired people that hate the IP and hate the fans or they themselves turned on the fans. And now we're, we're functioning with a type of, it's not a love-hate relationship, it's a hate-hate relationship. It's, it's baffling. But the reason I'm bringing it out is because however many years in the future, people are going to look back on this time and scratch their heads. Be like, what? Uh, Go ahead, Nemesis. Thoughts on the death of Hicks and Newt.
1: Well, first of all, I'm just going to say that after finding out the age of that actress, I feel, I'm just going to say, I feel a little bit dirty because I watched the movie today and it's like, that's really wrong. And I, I just want to stress that it is really, really disgusting. You know, um, I was like. I
0: didn't know that. I didn't know that because I never
1: watched that scene. Yeah, a seven or an eight-year-old girl, I'm like, eh. you know, my little girls, when they were little, were running around all the time, but that is a whole other thing. So I'm just going to say that right up front second um i agree with everything all the points you've all made um i did want to add to dt's point where you're talking about it never really clicked in my mind i knew it but didn't click that by the end of this film all of the survivors of aliens were dead and it never really clicked in my
2: head why this movie was nihilistic i just knew it was nihilistic i didn't want to think about it The Last survivor of the Nostromo is Jonesy the cat. Yeah,
1: somewhere. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah on Back that on Earth Yeah. You know, and
1: so I mean, wow. That I mean, that is just it just like an illumination for me. It's like that is, I mean, if you want to send a message of despondency and hopelessness, there it is. That you have no chance. Even when you think you have a chance, you have no chance. And then um what was I going to say? The last thing I'm going to say, you know, I agree with all your points in film. So I'm going to take it somewhere else for a second and put my writer's hat on for a second. And this kind of dovetails into what uh, DT was talking about with, with creators and stuff. One of the ways that I know for sure that whoever wrote this film was either a hack, as Steve said, a producer or something, or somebody who has no love for the franchise or the IP at all is this i write all sorts of stuff and these guys know i write dark stuff i write demons and possessions people die i write all sorts of characters and i love every one of them and when i write characters that get lots of time i really love them i put my heart and soul into them they're my babies but i'm a sadist because i'm a writer i kill my characters sometimes but you know what i never kill them without a reason never If one of my characters one of my babies that i put a bunch of time into dies it's going to be for a dang good reason for a story reason it's not going to be a throwaway the only time if 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 i wrote a bunch of characters and i gave you my baby and then you killed my baby for no reason it would kill me and it would infuriate me no creator no writer is killing his or her uh, intellectual children. I mean, that's what they are. They're the children of our mind, unless there is a reason because you're advancing something greater, which is the story world you're creating, the plot. And Hicks and Newt, and to a certain extent, Bishop, even though he plays a part later, were killed for no reason. Their deaths serve no reason for the story. And right there, that tells me that whoever did that didn't care about these characters at all, didn't care about the story at all, didn't care about this IP at all, didn't care about this franchise at all. It certainly wasn't the people that came up with those characters, that wrote those characters for Aliens, it wasn't them. Because no creator, no writer does that to their creation, because they put too much of their heart and soul into developing those characters in the first place, and then you just, flush it down the toilet. And that's all i got to say about
0: that. Now, what I want to do is I want to combine all the comments of my co-host and put on my writer's hat and talk about macro vision. Because everything we have said up to this point about the failures comes from a lack of an overarching vision. I want you to think about every franchise that you have been disappointed in. The reason it turned bad is because of either it never had a cohesive overarching vision or they turned their back on the one that was there. And everything that they just said, everything we talked about, the biomechanical art See, I really want that movie bad now, what me and Jeff were talking about. I really want it bad, the alien home world as designed by Giger and everything that they come from. It's because, and here's my point, the story world has actually already set up for the alien adventures to continue. So, in other words, hurting Ripley, Hicks, Newt, and Bishop doesn't do anything. The story world is there for the alien franchise to continue. You didn't have to hurt them. You didn't have to destroy them. You didn't have to cut open this little girl. You didn't have to impale Hicks. You didn't have to mutilate. You didn't have to do any of that. You could have let them go off in the sunset. You could have let them join a science division. You could have let them be like Sarah Connor and get their revenge on Waylon Yutani like Sarah Connor was trying to stop Skynet or get a revenge on Cyberdyne systems. So many different ways it could have gone. In other words, we could have had it all. We could have had an alien homeworld. We could have had more creatures. We could have had more art. We could have had more mythology for the aliens. And the human characters could have got a happy ending, gone off in the sunset, and then we continue the franchise in the next movie with a new set. We could have even done Aliens Berserker, if you're familiar with that book, where they develop an exosuit where they actually go in the nest and then they have a man that's bait. I, just so many different ways. The books did it and the novels do it and some of the games did it, but the movies just oops, movies just dropped a ball in a way that we we still don't understand. This 2021, and we still don't understand. How could you blow it that bad? Okay, so after the alien comes out, the movie basically becomes a chase movie slash haunted house again, a little bit of a repeat of the first one. So basically, who's going to die and how? So it's a chase movie slash haunted house movie. So we are going to talk about that. But before we get to that, here's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about Ripley as a woman in the midst of a a colony of prisoners, a colony of double Y chromosome men who are uh, overly aggressive, uh, rapists and murderers and men who are overly perverse. And they drop Ripley in a situation like that. Uh, And then, of course, we have the attempted rape scene. Now, we were talking before we came on it. My perspective on it was I think that was very watered down. I think they tried to have it both ways. They tried to make us believe that these were men who were kind of at the extremes of humanity and they were at, you know, the extreme end of space. But somehow you drop a woman in their midst and I don't know, it it felt disingenuous to me. The thing I like most about the attempted rape scene, because nothing about that is good but the thing I liked most was the way Dylan saved the day. And the way Dylan saved the day, I maintain, is because Ripley put on bravado, whether it was real or false, but she won his respect by letting him know she wasn't afraid of him because what did she have to lose at this point? And I think that respect carried over to him saving her when the other prisoners tried to rape her. But it was one of the, like Nemesis said, something it's, uh, you have cognitive dissonance that you can't explain. And then sometimes somebody puts it in words and it clicks for you. Because my cognitive dissonance as I watched the film was that I realized that nothing about this is realistic. Nothing about a woman who who was about to run out there naked and Bracey talks about the stupidity, even though I do believe Ripley weighed her options. I believe she made the right choice and that part was smart. It was the situation that about her running around around men that you're trying to uh, paint as extreme and aggressive and that kind of thing. And I don't know. It, it just, I can't put it into words. It just doesn't feel like it would have gone down that way. It just doesn't feel like her as a woman in that situation, that, you know, they all were subdued. But you told us there were Y chromo boys that are, have extreme behavior. And I'm not saying I want to see that happen at all. I'm not saying I was wishing that on the Ripley character. What I'm talking about is the writing juxtaposition of ideas that don't go together. The idea of a wild, crazy prison environment without a control men that are the worst of the worst, that have no self-control, then you drop a woman and they miss. That whole thing still doesn't ring true with me. I would have rather had been in a situation where we had the monks, we had men that were eunuchs we had men that were sworn to celib- celibacy. They said they'd taken a vow, but I didn't believe it. I didn't believe it that much, that much. You didn't make me believe that if a woman dropped in your midst, you were like, we've all taken a vow, whatever, monks would do that. Monks that have been castrated become eunuchs on their own, or maybe they were born deformed. That's why they became monks. They can't perform, they can't have children. So they dedicated their life to God or they had such a strong religious conviction that this is not the way to behave that i would have bought but i don't buy you know the the death row people the crazy men and i just don't buy i didn't want that to happen to ripley i'm just saying it's disingenuous doesn't go so i want to hear you guys thoughts on that whole thing Uh, ripley as a woman in this environment how the prisoners react to her how realistic you think that was that kind of thing uh start with steve
2: Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I had been saying, like since the other day when I started to watch this movie was, this is basically a women in prison movie in space, but like kind of toned down, (laughs) uh, if if you know anything about exploitation movies and I'm not really a fan of them, but, uh, it just kind of made me think of that. And because what they're trying to do is, you know, since the alien is kind of like a metaphor for rape anyway, um, it kind of seemed like they were trying to double down on that with the prison switch. Um, um, but, yeah, and, and I have to say it's not believable. And a lot of it is because of the Frankensteining of this, because they were intended to be monks and then they rewrote them to be prisoners. And and then they overdid it by making them like the worst of the worst, um, when probably what they should have done would should have been make this like the dirty dozen where, you know, yeah, these guys committed crimes, they did bad stuff but they were likable characters and you could see like, okay, maybe they could redeem themselves and maybe they would have their last big shot of redemption by killing the alien. Uh, Something like that I think could have been interesting, but instead we just get this whole business where, you know, they, they, they try to ambush her and rape and try to do the, the attempted rape scene. I don't like rape scenes in general. So this one really kind of was like, ugh. And this, and this movie was grimy enough without ad- adding attempted rape to it uh, in addition to that. Um, I did like the way they, they handled the Dylan character. I agree with you, DT. I think Dylan has been like the one good character throughout this one movie, this whole movie, and the thing that kind of kept me going, especially through the last half of the movie because Dylan – uh, was one of those characters. It seemed like the kind of character that you would find like in a Dirty Dozen. You know, he he yeah he did some some really horrible things, uh, but you can see that you know this that prison changed him. Uh, you saw that he turns to religion, and you see you know the extent to which he's going to do what he thinks is right, whatever the consequences. Uh, and you kind of see that in that scene where she where he earns Ripley's where Ripley earns his respect, and you know because of that he saves her. Um, and that kind of gets her down on that road where he, he goes to the end. And so honestly, in many ways, Dylan was like a bore of a heroic figure to me than Ripley was in this movie. Yes. Um, uh, and that's, a that's really, really unfortunate because I, I really, really like that character, but you know, it should have been that Ripley should have been, you know, the hero of the movie, if she was going to be the hero in the movie. And instead it ends up being the Charles Dutton character who ends up doing that instead. Um, Beyond that, I just thought that the prisoners were um, – unfortunately, they really blended together. You don't get to know most of them very well beyond uh, Dylan and, like, a couple of others, Uh, the doctor and, and, um, you know – couple of the other characters and you know it's because a lot of them look the same but it's because we really don't get enough time with them to get to know them uh and so you know we don't really get the feeling that anything is believable and when they start dying we don't care i I was thinking (laughs) the other day like this is the first alien movie that i've seen where i don't care that these people are dying uh and, and you know we care what happened you know even to like dallas and lambert and, you know, and they might have been idiots, but we cared about them. We don't care at, at all about most of these prisoners and they're getting chopped up in the nice liver by uh, by the alien. And it's just like, OK, well, that happened, you know, and there, there's nothing to attach us to most of these prisoners. And thus there's nothing that that makes us feel like anything going on is real, uh, like there was in aliens where you feel like, OK, yeah, this was a military unit. This is how they act. And we got to know, you know, just through little bits and scenes, yeah, this is who this person is and who this is who this person is. None of that was in this movie. Not a single one of that. Uh, so, yeah, n- you know, n- between the disgust uh, of the attempted rape, which, you know, I don't know why that had to be in this movie at all, um, you know, other than maybe during the respect of Dylan, um, just just everything about all this is just the, the Frankensteining of it just come, really, really comes out. And just the lack of thought in most of these characters comes out. And it's all a mess.
0: Now, that's another, this is the second time we've seen characters brutalized, the characters we loved brutalized. And both times you said the same thing, which is 100% spot on. It was not necessary. She could have won his respect with that conversation. And maybe the men could have circled her in the cafeteria with that look. And Dylan beats him up then. We didn't have to get graphic. We didn't have to go into detail. That wasn't necessary. Uh, Go ahead, Nemesis. Thoughts on Ripley as a woman in a prison with a bunch of y chromo boys.
1: Yeah. How do I say this? Um, Putting a woman in among a group of you know, an enclosed space with a bunch of double Ys. And I actually did a little research on this for something else I wrote a long time ago, would be akin to strapping a bunch of meat to yourself and walking through an enclosure with a bunch of lions. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: you could do it, but it's not advisable, you know? And uh, I'll be honest with you, although I love Dylan, Dylan was the least believable. If he was supposed to be a double Y chromosome, because in order to keep control of yourself, even religiously, you would be doing, I mean, you'd be doing self-flagellation. You'd be doing, you might even be castrated. You'd be doing a whole host of things. Very unpleasant. Uh, That said, I think once again, this is an idea, and this is just me speculating with my writer's hat again on that. This must have been an idea that carried over, from the Frankenstein of the script. And this is not me saying I want to see this film or that I would want to write this, but I could. I could see you writing this where Ripley is plunked down into this situation where she is in real danger. Every moment, she has to be on her guard. And then you add the alien into it. Then the tagline for the movie makes sense, because then you get a juxtaposition between who's more dangerous, alien? or man? You know, who is the the greater threat? Who is the greater evil? And you would have to do some pretty horrible things to Ripley that I don't want to see that I don't necessarily want to write, I could do it. I don't want to do it. It would be an interesting moral discussion. It would be, you know, a takeoff from there, there would be a way to write it without being graphic, but it would still be disturbing. And I could see that movie lurking in the background there. It would be interesting. It would have to be rated R. It would be very disturbing. It wouldn't be a sci-fi horror movie. It would be something else. And it would be a disturbing movie. It'd be like a seven movie that you never want to see again. You know, where it's just like you watch it once. You're like, yeah, I'm good. I don't think I need to see that for the rest of my life. (laughs) You know? Um, And I think that's really what they were going for here. Especially when I heard the tagline. because That's the first time I've ever heard the tagline. I think that they that whoever thought of the prisoners and the double Y chromosomes was thinking we're plucking Ripley down. She's gone from one danger to a different danger and maybe even a greater danger, you know, of her own fellow human beings. And then you're exploring the morality of man and and a whole host of things that once again, I think you're putting way too much on what should just be some fun sci fi horror movie. You're you're starting to get into some really deep subjects. And so I think that's what they, they were kind of thinking here. And it's just a mess. You know, it's just a mess because you're putting way too much in there. If that's the movie you want to make, then there are ways to do it. I don't think it's advisable, but there's ways to do it. And this was not the way to do it. So.
0: See, now what you articulated was, like I said, I couldn't put words to it, but that helped me put words to it, is that I didn't want to see any of this. I didn't want to think about any of this. I didn't want to feel any of this. I came in this movie rooting for Ripley, like we all did coming out of the other movie. And I didn't want to see a situation where she's in a situation like this. I would have rather seen the monks. I would rather seen a situation where we have men of peace and men of religion, but that's why they don't have weapons. And so maybe, see, because the way I would have written it is if you have a literal manifestation of a demon or something that looks like a demon or something that's as demon-like as you've ever seen in your life, you've never seen that before, what would you do if you're a deeply religious person? See, that's fascinating to me. What would you do? Um, and not to get off into a metaphysical metaphysical discussion, but what do you do if there's some type of manifestation of something along that level? Because that's what is going to test your faith. That's what's going to see what you really believe when you come face to face with a puma creature that moves as fast as a cat that's got wolverine claws that's that's horrific. What do you do in that kind of situation? That's, see, I would have watched that. There's nothing about this that I want to see, think about, revisit. Just not. Just it's just, just a wall of disgust. Go ahead, Bracy. Uh, Ripley as a woman in this mix, in this situation.
3: Yeah. So what? Uh, uh what the audience wasn't privy to before is I was. Uh, I was kind of struck by the idea of like Ripley coming into the uh, the cafeteria when the smart play, to my mind, survival, would have been to just. Stay, hold up in the infirmary. Uh, instead, she goes in there and she pokes the bear. Uh, she goes right in the room. She takes all the stairs. Uh, now, DT convinced me this was the right move uh, because she is prey in a you know a house full of predators, if you will. And the only thing she can do, the only thing she's got going for, her is not to appear as prey. Uh, these men with the double Y chromosomes were likely used to uh, getting off. If you think about the psychology of uh, killers and rapists and things, it's, it's, it's not really the sex. It's the, it's the violence. It's the power. It's the control. It's, it's taking pleasure in somebody else's pain. And she steals that away in that moment. So you sold me on that scene. I still don't think it was the smartest way to go about it, but it does set up her getting Charles Dutton's respect because she gets right in his face and, uh, you know, the lion is like, you know, I'm a killer and rapist of women. She's like, oh, well, I must make you feel very uncomfortable. <laughs> and she says it, she delivers it in a way that's not like if it was done today, it would be like super over-the-top, uber-feminist kind of thing. And it would just fall flat. But the way she delivers it is perfect. It's a well-done exchange between the two actors. Uh, now, uh, Nemesis brought up something that I was going to bring up myself that These guys have been in prison for decades and decades, and for the past five years, they developed a religion, and they stayed here by themselves voluntarily because they realized as these violent men, they have found a sort of redemption. Uh, They have become a cloister of monks in their own way. This has become their sanctuary and their salvation, and now you drop her into the mix. So, like everybody else, I don't want to see anything Horrible happened, Ellen, because this uh, this movie's horrible enough to do things to her. But what would have made sense for me uh, as a writer would I would have seen these guys challenged that, by that? There wouldn't have been an attempted rape. Uh, there would certainly have been attempted murders, uh, because she's the problem. She's disrupting our quiet. She is disrupting our solitude. She is disrupting our very existence. Like everything that I have spent the last five years fighting against and coming in grips with, like you've thrown it all out of balance. You are chaos that must be removed from my tranquility. And those who don't give in to that impulse, they should be flagellating themselves. They should be kneeling on those uh, spiked knee boards, you know, just like uh, racking their shins. They should be going... And ha- going to Dylan, and they should be having these prayer meetings. Like, you know, be strong, brother. It it, it should be like, you know, the Alcoholics oh, Anonymous. but like, when you call up your sponsor, like, dude, dude, I'm about to lose. I'm about to lose. I'm about to kill this woman. It's like, all right, man, calm down. Let me talk. just, just don't kill her for like five minutes. Don't kill her for five minutes. All right. So, can you not kill her for ten minutes? You know, you keep on like that. Scenes like that would have played out much better. Silas uh, from the,
1: Silas from the Da Vinci Code.
3: Is that uh, yeah, exactly. That? Exactly. The, the only way and you guys might find this a bit funny. The only way I find the rape scene palatable at all is I have developed my own special headcanon. cannon. Uh, that like she's she's on a prison planet, named uh, nicknamed Fury One Six One. She's attacked by a bunch of bald guys, and the guy who's about to perform the act even pulls down some goggles. She's about to get raped by Riddick. Oh, he's oh. on these super. He's he's on these he's on these supermax planets. And as another tie-in, I found out one of the one of the many script writers was David Toey, who developed Pitt, yeah, Black yeah. and Reddit. So, like, there you go, Headcanon. Dylan beats up Reddit. Be <laughs> I would
2: not the, be surprised. The if, planet um, is called. Took that and created Reddit. Yeah,
3: and that's. I'll tell you. I, I, I think there's a connection there.
2: The planet is called yeah. Furia.
3: Yeah, it's yep. it's called Fury One Six One. It's like it's like okay, we got this scary looking dude, and he's got his I goggles, bet. and he's it a fury Yeah. So there's there's he, my he, he and, revised his own draft that made it a new movie. That's Internet, you you're welcome. I just connected Pitch Black to Alien. <laughs> oh no! Yeah,
0: see, and, see, it's it's what and,
1: and the aliens in Pitch Black are the Xenomorphs.
0: Yeah. They're the Xenomorphs, mm-hmm. exactly. they really are. They really are. But see, that's you know, Nemesis really crystallized it for me. The themes of where this movie goes are not necessary. Just mm-hmm. nothing about the level of darkness, the bleakness, and the darkness of the characterizations is necessary in this franchise. It's a separate movie. And that's mm-hmm. what it is. That's what it has been bothering me all this time. That all this stuff is almost a, a separate franchise. It's not, it doesn't have any place yeah. dropped yeah. in right after Aliens. It's like Superman three. Like John yeah. yeah. fire doesn't have any business in the Superman franchise. As somebody said, wouldn't it be great if? No, no, that would not be great.
1: They tried okay. to shoehorn a psychological drama into a sci-fi horror movie. So Yeah, mm-hmm. that's it.
0: That's it. Encapsulated very well. Okay, two more things, and then we'll wrap up. Uh uh, We're going to talk about death, but don't talk about Ripley's death. That's going to be the last thing we talk about. So we're going to save Ripley's death for the very end. But basically, it's a chase movie after the alien comes out. So I want you to talk about your favorite death and your least favorite death. So my favorite death was when, even though I love Pete Postlethwaite, if I'm saying that right, Postlethwaite, Postlethwaite, uh, the way he dies was hilarious because he's hiding behind a door and the alien was on the other side. Somehow the thing goes up in the plumbing in the ceiling and you see it come behind him as he's looking out the door, and he turns around, and that thing rears back and shoots a stunt through his own head and through the glass door, that was, I know I shouldn't laugh, but that, that was just intensely kind of funny. I was like, well, if you're gonna die, then die hard. And the reason I guess that's my favorite is because very few of the other deaths make any sense. There are so many deaths where they walk up on an eight foot creature that you couldn't see it, and then it all of a sudden just rears up to full height, and you, no. No, that's a, a poor attempt at a horror frame or whatever. Yeah, whatever. But that one I thought was kind of, because that was something that only the alien could do. Be on one side of the door and it doesn't occur to you because a human wouldn't do it because we saw them doing it in aliens. But they would mm. go up in the ceiling and go up in the pipe and go up in a beyond structure where we don't walk and come down. But I was like, oh my goodness. So that one I liked. The absolute worst death, and remember we're not Count Ripley, that's at the end, is Dylan's death. I can't stand the way he went out. I couldn't believe they had the alien just tear him apart. And then he dies in the hot lead. I couldn't believe when he told Ripley, Ripley to leave and he was going to take the lead and go out that way. And then they had the alien tear him apart and then the lead comes on him anyway. And then the lead doesn't kill the alien. So he got eviscerated and they, I, I couldn't believe it. He did, if he was going to go out, which I didn't like, but if he was going to go out, he should have a better, should have had a better exit than that. He went toe-to-toe with the alien, and of course the is gonna win, we get all that. But once again, Steve's theme, that was not necessary. That was not, the it tore him apart and he's screaming as he's dying. Is that all you got? Is that the best you can do? So he's dying hard, he's dying like a man. Yeah, That's good, but he's still dead, okay? And I just, and then they poured a lead on him. And I'm like, if any character had a mini redemptive arc it was him mm-hmm. uh, because he was religious and he was a leader. And then he had to step up when he didn't want to. And then Ripley won his begrudging respect. And then he protected her. And they kind of developed a bond as the movie went on. And he's the one character you believed, had he survived, might have come out better. But instead, he gets torn up by the dog alien and then hot lit and I oh, So let me hear your thoughts on your favorite death, if you have one, and the one you hated the most. And we're going to save Ripley's until the very end. Start with Bracey.
3: Okay. Uh, This kind of digs into something I had. I had a problem with, like, all the deaths in this film. You got (laughs) to cast 25. Uh, So obviously they've decided to up the fodder, you know, like we... We had a we had a small crew on the Nostromo. We have more marines and aliens. Now we got to have 25. So like we we got to have more slaughter. And one of the things I didn't get about this is like you said they would they would walk up on it. The brilliance of the first movie and even like when they first invade the reactor in the second film is you see how the aliens blend into their environment. Yeah. Whether it's their own biomechanical environment or whether they can blend into industrial settings. And they they play into that in a scene that Actually, uh, uh, Fincher didn't have permission to film where Ripley engages the alien by herself. Uh, he he was not supposed to do that, and he he grabs Sigourney, he ran in, was like, "Oh, let's let's film this scene real quick. We're not allowed to do this." Where you see a, it it blending into the environment, and then you find like, "Oh, that's just kind of her wishful thinking," uh, as she knocks the pipe open with her own like uh, improvised weapon. So it just it just runs around killing and killing and killing. And I, I didn't like this because, once again, we've broken the rules. We've broken the mythology. We've broken the lore. Uh, the alien is not an indiscriminate killer. It's a killer with a purpose. It is either going to kill for nutritional value or it's going to kill to build a hive. Uh, this thing doesn't do any of that. And we keep seeing it every time, every time it kills somebody. We see it continuously eating. Mm-hmm. Well... That's fine. Why does it decide to keep chasing everything when it's let other people like uh, Golan go earlier uh, when it had killed two victims? And that whole setup was weird to me because, like, they saw it grab the one guy. They run around the corner and they run back around into it with the other victim. What? No. Uh, It's so confusing. So uh, I'm going to say that my favorite death is the alien's death. And here's why. Here's why. Not for the reasons you think. There's actually kind of a beautiful setup in here where they're planning this crap. They're, they're laying out all this explosive fuel, uh, which the whole time I was watching this, I'm like, well, this isn't going to work. They, they've got 25 gas spread all over the place. Uh, they're, some of them are working alone. These things pick off things when they're alone. That's what predators do. And so of course it snatches a dude predictably drops the fuel drops the flare. Uh, blows a whole bunch of people up. They have to set off the sprinkler system, so they foreshadow the end of this, and uh, one of the buckets cracks open as the sprinkler hits it. So you see the superheated bucket, the water hits it, and it cracks open. So, I like that just because they foreshadowed the the alien's death, how they were going to do it, in a rather elegant way. Uh, I'm going to go with you. Least favorite death is going to be Dylan. I didn't mind Dylan taking on the alien as a big self-sacrifice, I think it would have been better if he survived like you. But if he's going to go out like a man, uh, I was expecting him to run and charge into it. You know, like not just wait for it. You know, he's going to run and meet it aggressively. I thought it was easily going to swat him aside because it wanted to go preserve its queen. And I thought the lead needs to come down on him as it's ripped into him. It thinks he's done. It's going after Ripley. And he jumps up and he like grabs the tailor or a leg and he, he puts both feet on the wall and yanks it back down on top of him. And the last thing you see before lead comes down, it's like he's wrapped an arm around his neck or something. And he's just ferociously hanging on to it as the yeah. lead comes down. That's how you go out like a boss. Yeah. You know he's gonna lose, but he loses like a hero. Uh so yeah, that's that's where I stand on that. And like the like I said, the other things about the The way it hunts and kills don't make any sense other than the cool fact that if it's using air shafts and you've got this cool idea for like all these doors to trap it. As soon as it decides like, oh, I can get on the other side of the door like this, you're playing screwed. The doors no longer matter.
0: Well, once again, you've written the movie I actually wanted to see (laughs) (laughs) as opposed to the one we got. Mm. I'm imagining that scene with Dylan and you're right. That's a boss scene. You gotta go out, that's the way to go out. But also, you also pointed out, uh, this is the first time we've seen the alien eat people. Remember, yeah. in Aliens, when the alien comes up out the water, which is one of the coolest scenes in ever to grab Newt, that was, Ripley said, they don't kill you. They don't kill you, she's alive, she's alive. Okay, this alien, like you said, goes against that every time. Killing just to kill and then eating it. I'm like, we've never seen it eat people before. We've seen them transfer it to the hive to be a host uh-huh. for to multiply. But never just, and it's chowing down and everybody it grabs that it can. So once again, so maybe that was their inflection yeah. of being like a dog, maybe? I'm,
3: I'm not against the idea of them eating because while, like, because we have the director's cut of Alien, we see that uh, there's egg morphing going on. Dallas's egg egg mor- morphing, mm-hmm. um, I forget the other character's name is being egg morphed, but it, it kills. Right. It, it, it kills Parker and Lambert. Um, but it doesn't. eat them. It doesn't eat them. But like, but it kills them. Although um, that I wasn't there for that, so that's that's a discussion for another day. Uh, my whole idea about like the uh, weird kind of like sexual things that's in there with like the, the tail and stuff, but I'm not going to get into that because that's that movie. But yeah, this is the first time we actually see it eat, and we don't really see it see them eat again. Uh, I don't think until Alien versus Predator.
0: Hmm. Okay, yeah. So again, in terms of the mythology, maybe that was their nod to a dog. I don't know. Hmm. Based on what we've seen so far, it doesn't make any sense because the alien would have been trying to set up something, uh, a hive-based system to get more eggs in there to hatch more aliens. That's what they do. That's their whole biological imperative. That's right. That's right. That's what they do. Go ahead, Nemesis. Uh least favorite death and most favorite death, if you have one.
1: Uh all right. If, well, before I get into those, I have to say this is what I'm about to say is gonna prove why all of you are much better people than I am. So <laughs> <laughs> uh I, I, I found Dylan's death hilarious, uh darkly ironic, because I was just sitting there watching him just getting torn up by this thing and go, come on, come on, you know, and I was just like, Brother, if you're gonna do that, go full Samuel L. Jackson with it, man. Just be <laughs> like, let's just go, you know. So I just thought it was ridiculous. Um, that is one of the moments I mean, one of the moments in this film where I thought it was just absolutely I mean, the guy is getting eviscerated and he's yelling at it. I do like Jeff's idea for it. And and so when I think see things like that, even though it's terrible, I I, thought, I just laugh at stuff like that, and which makes me a terrible person. So Keep the shame on me. I I know Um, my least favorite death in this movie is the death of Clemens. And the reason I say that uh, is because two people there saw something behind Clemens and didn't say a darn thing. I mean, they just they they let that thing get in. I mean, at least for Ripley, she saw it a moment, you know, just a moment before. But the other guy, he's just sitting there watching it going, (laughs) all right, yeah. Let's see what's going to happen now. I'm just like, brother, say something. Do something. And even Ripley, it's like, you got to shout out. So I hate that death. Uh, you think that they'd yell, warn him, do something. You know, make some movement that would make Clemens be like, "Uh, maybe I've got an alien coming behind me. Instead, it was just. Pure horror movie stupidity. That's really what that was. It was really dumb. Um, my favorite death, and once again, makes proves that you guys are better people than me because I, I laugh at darkly ironic things all the time. I love when the warden got killed. Uh, yeah. I thought it was absolutely hilarious. And then the rubber ball dropping down. I thought that, that was, was one nice of the fun- uh, it was one of the funniest damn things I've seen in the whole movie, you know. And and maybe it's just my sense of humor. I do laugh at dark stuff a lot. Uh, I guess it's kind of my coping mechanism in some ways. But he's sitting there telling them there's nothing to worry about, and then he just snatched up and destroyed, and then the rubber ball comes down, and I was, you know, and then and then right after that, the guy's sitting there mopping it up, looking. Yeah. At the I'm just
0: like. <laughs> well, well, the warden deserved it. Yeah. So yeah. that was a little bit more thing, but that thing you just pointed out. That didn't occur to me until you said it, and now I can't unsee it. Uh, that was a horror movie scene just for the sake of being there, because it doesn't make narrative sense. Because the mm-hmm. alien comes in and ignores two prisoners that are already in his path. If it's for food or reproduction, you have two deer or gazelle, if you will, if you're the apex predator right there, and one of them is strapped down. He well, walks, gotta- literally walks past them and says, no, I'm going to kill her boyfriend.
3: Well, we gotta forgive that because she's got the queen in her, and it can sense that. But there's no reason not to eat the guy in the bed.
0: Yeah, if, if it's yeah. for food or reproduction, you don't walk by those two targets. No other predator would do that. Number one, and then number two, what does he do after he kills Clemens? Because he 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 breaks his neck, and then he he tongue impales him because you can hear his his back and his neck snap. So you can hear the twist, kind of like the queen did with Bishop. And then he does the thing. But then the dog alien comes and sniffs Ripley like it was going to take her out. Then he smelled the queen. So it looked like he was actually discovering that she was impregnated with the queen. Yeah. And then it takes Clements body and disappears up in the shaft.
1: Well, the other problem with that scene is this. When was the last time Ripley saw an alien get that close to somebody and nothing happened? And Ripley- Ever? And and Ripley- is not suspicious until later on in the movie when she goes check. But she right. goes a third of the movie, having seen the alien come up to her, and then we have to have another scene where she goes out alone to try and get it to kill her, and it doesn't. So it's like, that wasn't even necessary because you've already seen that it won't kill you, so.
0: OK, we're going to talk about that in a minute when we talk about her death. Because our whole, whole arc plays into how she goes out, and every point along the way is stupid. Uh, go ahead, Steve. <laughs> Favorite death and least favorite death if you have one.
2: Yeah, favorite death. I'm going to go with The Warden as well, and it's mainly for the same reasons why uh, I, I was okay with Dallas getting killed in the first movie. Uh, and and that was uh, that... I really hated the warden, as you said, he really, really deserved it. He was really an idiot. And, uh, you know, it was just like every time he showed up, he was doing something stupid, like blackmailing the doctor and, and things like that. I'm like, yeah, I, I won't miss you. Uh, goodbye. You know, so, yeah, just for that reason alone, I'm okay with the warden. Did it make sense? No. (laughs) Nothing in this movie makes sense. But at least that one was at least fun to watch, uh, emotionally satisfying to watch, as opposed to a lot of the other ones, which is like, why the hell are you doing this? So I'll go for that one alone. Um, In terms of, like, least favorite death, yeah, for me, it's, like, really close between um, Dylan and uh, Clemens. But since you guys went over uh, Dylan pretty thoroughly, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about uh, why I didn't like uh, Clemens being killed. And, and this is just his own story arc, his character arc, because he kind of starts off, um, you know, at a place where he's dealing with, um, you know, guilt and, and redemption, and, you know, wanting to redeem himself, you know, because of uh, the stuff that he did as a doctor that got him sent over. Um, to being a prisoner and then being the medical officer of the prison um, and so uh, what does he do you know he never got that 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 chance to fully redeem himself you mm. know he can he, he has that connection with Ripley okay that's great um you know that gives him a motivation to to do something uh, a little bit more and to make that sacrifice but his death is pointless he doesn't he doesn't earn a redemption of any kind he's just there to be fodder for the alien and on top of that, they, they did one of the most horror movie trope things ever, which is uh, you can't have sex or you die you know, because he sleeps with Ripley. And then what ends up happening is he's just killed by the monster. It's the same thing that you would see like in a Friday the 13th movie. I'm like, oh, come on. You have this character and he's reasonably well written. He is played by freaking Tywin Lannister and he did a good job on this movie. Okay? He you know, I ended he was one of the few characters I end up not only remembering but actually liking. And then what ends up happening is is he just ends up getting rando killed by the alien in the most stupid way imaginable. And yeah, I agree. Why not go after Paul McGann? Because he was the other guy in the room. It's like you know, go kill the doctor. You know, he's just right there. Why <laughs> did you? Why did you have to kill Clemens? Come on, this is that was just ridiculous. So you know, he doesn't get a satisfying character arc. Uh, and it's cut short for no reason whatsoever. I would have liked to have seen him, you know, have some kind of heroic death at the end if they had to kill him. But no, he doesn't merit a heroic death. He just gets rando killed for no reason. What a waste of a good character. Uh, same with Dylan, honestly. It, it, for both, and, and really, both of them were bad deaths for the exact same reasons. Good characters wasted off in stupid ways for no character reason whatsoever. Can I make a, a
1: one quick point real quick that might blow all your minds? Because I think I thought about this the first time I watched the film and I thought about it this time. Clemens character. He tells Ripley why he's there. Do we trust yeah. Clemens? Do we trust him? This whole prison, the the concept for the prison is that it's a home. It was always a prison for double Y chromosomes. Mm-hmm. That's not why Clemens says he's there. So why would yeah. they send a doctor who is a, who is guilty of malpractice and has a relatively short sentence to a double Y chromosome?
3: To take mm-hmm. them out.
0: To take them out, that's why.
3: Mm-hmm. So, There's something yeah. else there, yeah. Excellent point. I missed that. I wasn't thinking about that at all.
0: But with what you said earlier, Jeff, we shouldn't have to be trying to figure out stuff from the movie. Yeah. <laughs> the movie's supposed to be telling us what's going on because, yeah, the... Definitely, if you have a doctor there that's known for putting together bad cocktails, if you know a prisoner or two just happens to die, who would know? Or maybe Will and they should have named this movie *Alien Three Redshirts* because that's <laughs> what it was. But um, another thing that I thought of is you were talking about smelling the queen inside of Ripley. I thought maybe the alien sense, like your dog can smell when you've been intimate. Like yeah. maybe the dog knew, well, Clemens is hooked up with Ripley, and I think a Queen Miles is inside of Ripley, so he's got to go because he's a threat. So that's that possible, too. Well, yeah. But yeah, you know, the, they should explain that to us. This is why he walked past other characters, because he could sense and smell like a dog could. That Clemens okay, is intimate with Ripley.
3: That's a that, cool actually, that actually makes the scene make more sense because like he mm-hmm. kills Clemens because he's been on Ripley. He follows her to the cafeteria instead of killing the other guys right there because this thing is a voracious killer for some reason, and then kills somebody in the room that she's just entered who mm-hmm. is acting aggressively towards her. That puts it in a lot better context. And, and, and the alien also followed Dylan when Dylan
1: appeared to be threatening Ripley later yes. in the movie. No. Yeah, the, well, so that's that.
3: subtle but I it, obviously with this chop sake of the film we didn't get any of that and you know the more I think about you saying red shirts it keeps clicking one other thing about the film these people do not act like they are in a film with an alien Ripley keeps refusing to tell anybody but she keeps demanding the truth out of the doctor if she'd have been straight with him he might have lived. She keeps telling all these guys, we got this alien thing, we got this alien thing, oh, now you see it, you know it. And then they still don't act like it, because what do they do? They go to set up the trap, and they go off in pairs at best or solo at the tables. And then and then when they're sitting around having their big meeting, they have the, the crazy guy, the guy who lives, the one who God promised would live forever, he's yeah. the only one who lives. Mm-hmm. He's sitting up by himself, and the other guys are in, like, small patches, and there may be a one or two guys here and there, like, I kept expecting something to grab his ass because he is, you know, when you're prey, you don't separate from the herd. They don't act like they have an apex predator around them at all.
0: Well, it was a horror trope and it was a bad horror trope. Mm -hmm. Like Steve was saying. And then, like I said, these other explanations we come up with make it make more sense. But Here's the thing. The colonists created a barricade in the last movie. So if you know this thing is running around, if you don't have weapons, you do have fire. You do have tables and chairs, which means you could melt the plastic and the concrete, whatever, and come up with some type of something.
3: Yeah, they've got everything they need to make barriers. I mean, they work in all this machinery. They've got welding tools. They do all this maintenance. They could close themselves off.
0: Right. Close yourself off. Or if you know the thing is traveling in the wind tunnels or in the vents, you can close them off, too, because that's what they do. Mm-hmm. So once again, they react the opposite of what anybody would react to given that situation. Yeah, which it, makes,
3: to- it makes you think the directors of Cabin in the Woods are back there like, all right, hit him with the stupid gas. <laughs> stupid <laughs> gas.
0: Stupid gas. So that leads me to our final topic, which is going to be Ripley's death and her arc leading up to her death. Um, have to borrow Steve's words. Again, it's just disgusting. Mm. It's disgusting on multiple levels. It's not just disgusting viscerally. It's disgusting as a writer that you would take uh, one of the top two action sci-fi heroines of all time, Ellen Ripley and Sarah Connor, the top two women who, both written by Cameron, who said in the face of incredible insurmountable odds, in the face of something that that would destroy most people, I will rise to the occasion. I have to become harder, I have to become more determined in Ripley's case, but my surrogate daughter is worth it. In Sarah's case, my son, John Connor, the savior of mankind is worth it. I know they think I'm crazy. I've been in an institution. They'll do anything they can to shut me up, but I know how the world ends and whatever it takes, I will do. And everything about that elevation is inspirational. Everything about that, seeing people dig into a deeper part of themselves and say, in spite of the insurmountable odds in front of me, I'm going to become what I need to become to save my child and on some level save the world. That's who these women are. And that's why we love them. But this movie, (laughs) this movie right here says that like when the alien comes up to her, Ripley's afraid and she's doing all this kind of stuff. I don't want to see Ripley like that. That's not what Ripley was doing before. I know she had weapons before, but when she was on her way in the elevator down to the Queen's Lair before she met the Queen to get new, she was Rambo, man. She was all with this <laughs> right here. And now she's hunching and like, eh, no, I don't want to see that. And, and you know, people would have at least swung chairs at it or say, you would have done something rather than cowering in the corner. And then what you just said, I hadn't thought about it. It's a bad horror trope. She didn't say anything. Clemens is begging her. What are we up against? I'm on your side. I want to help you, but I need to know what we're fine. She didn't say anything. It's like, well, I just need to see the chamber and there's the acid burn. She didn't say anything, which is the absolute wrong response to having a situation until people start dying. And now the grits have hit the pan. Now you come screaming, talk about is it, here. You already knew it was here. You know, that is not the woman we saw in Aliens. That is not a flight officer. That is not someone that's been around Marines. That's not someone that's risked their life to save their child. That's not that person. That's somebody else. And so, and then uh, the scene where she sees the the thing in her and she sees the queen in her and all this different kind of stuff, there's a line she says when she, you know, that little funny jab, you know, it's just right there down in the basement. It's a metaphor. But there's a line she says that sums up her whole arc in the film. She says, You've been a part of my life so long, I don't remember anything else. That is her version of you win.
3: Yeah.
0: But so when the baby alien comes out and says, hey, Amen, we're dealing, that was I win. When Ripley went down in the basement and said, You've been a part of my life she said, You win. I'm like, Then what's the point of the film? What's the point if the alien just, what's the point? There's no point. It's just needlessly, needlessly, needlessly dark. So then, so then we get to the final thing, and she wants to commit suicide, but she can't kill herself. And then she ends up killing herself. Okay. In Rocky 3, Apollo said it doesn't take a man to stand there and get his head beat in. In Rocky 4, Apollo stood there and got his head beat in. I can't yeah. stand that. I can't stand that. I can't yeah. stand it. So Ripley says, I don't have the courage to do what I need to. I've got a queen inside of me, it can lay thousands of eggs. I know what it can do. I need to die but I can't do it. Then at the end of the film, guess what all of a sudden? So all the way leading, all the points leading up to her arc were just so stupid to me. It's not Ripley. It's almost not Ripley as much as Alien 4's Ripley is in Ripley, but we'll get there next week. But I just did not believe this was the same woman that I saw in Aliens. And so at the end, she decides not to trust a real bishop or original bishop or flesh and blood bishop or Bishop model or whatever they were trying to pass him off as. And then she decides to take herself out and throw herself in the lid. And then if everything that's happened so far wasn't enough, the burster queen comes out while she's falling. And once again, uh, Bracey talked many times about violating your own mythology because those things are birthed hard. Let's go back to Kane's situation. Cain was writhing and spitting and his tongue was out of his mouth and the thing came out in stages. There was one blood spurt, then it came out a second time. And But it, those things were birthed hard. In the second movie, when they find the one colonist that's alive, that thing's hammering at her sternum. Hammering at her sternum and then it comes out. But here, just all of a sudden, just splurch, and it's out and it doesn't kill her. Somehow she grabs it and coddles it, nurses, what is she doing? What, what, what is, what, what is she doing? Is it saying that she's a mother, that this is the new nude? Is she saying she accepted her fate? She shouldn't be alive to do anything. She should be dead like everybody else we've seen get chest bursted. But for some reason, this happens. I don't understand why this happens. And then she dies in molten lead. And we have this big score that everybody in the movie said, this must be a dream. Yeah. Everybody in the theater thought there's going to be another scene where she's waking up. And this didn't happen, or we couldn't believe it. I still can't believe it. And so when I look at her death narratively, and as a writer, I'm like, this is nothing but desecrating a character. Deconstruction is not a strong enough word. This is a desecration. And the character was desecrated right down to the end where the alien stomps his foot on her fresh corpse and said, I win. I put two my babies in the ship. Uh, you know did crash or whatever killed new Hicks. I got a baby in you. I am I win. That's that's all it was, and I'm just shaking my head like I I couldn't believe it, couldn't believe it, and that is just why I just cannot stand this film. So I want to hear you guys' thoughts on Ripley's death and the whole arc leading up to her death. Start with Nemesis.
1: Yeah, the first thing I'll say is just that the only thing that redeems the Ripley character in this movie is the Ripley from Alien Four. So, uh, you know, that's how much I hate Alien 4. So that'll be really interesting when we talk about that movie. Because <laughs> uh, if this was a desecration, Alien 4 is an abomination. And I'll just leave it at that. We'll it. Uh, yeah, you know, they did the unthinkable here. They took their main character and turned, her, turned their main character into a plot contrivance. The whole time, she is nothing but a plot contrivance some way to drive forward some weird thing where i honestly believe they wanted to film aliens three and four back to back i think they knew where they wanted to go with alien four and so they used ripley the real ripley as a plot contrivance in alien three to get them somehow to alien four and it still didn't make sense but Mm -hmm. we'll get to that next week you know when we talk about alien four that said the other thing that really drives me crazy, and I'm glad you hit on this, because I'm gonna, I'm gonna take that softball you threw up there and knock it out of the park. <laughs> that scene where she says, "You have been with me so long," blah 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 blah. You know, I don't remember the exact words. I think I blocked them out of my mind. How long has the alien been with Ripley? A couple of days on the Nostromo at most. A couple of weeks while she was on the space station around Earth say four or five days at most on the sulaco and down on lv427 and then maybe a couple weeks at most on fury you know furia if that's what we to call it now so maybe the aliens been with her a month month and a half it, it, it's it's they're writing real world yeah it, the alien's been with ellen ripley for not you know for uh since 1979 in our world so it's been with her for 13 years in our world for ellen ripley this is still brand new to her. It's fresh. All Mm -hmm. of it's fresh. In her Mm -hmm. mind, the death of Dallas and Parker and all them, that's still fresh. Mm -hmm. All of that. So it makes no sense. You know, and this is once again, the problem with the writers. They're not writing the franchise. They're writing this movie. They're not writing the lore. They're not writing the IP. They're writing this film that they wanted to tell instead of staying true to what came before. They couldn't care less what came before. That's right. Because to Ripley, Ripley's a woman out of time. As far as Ripley knows, 57 years ago was last week.
0: Yep. Now, the reason that's salient is because we've seen it done right with Captain America. Mm -hmm. We've seen Mm -hmm. Steve Rogers come out of his frozen coma realize he's a man out of time but it's played so well he's a 1940s dude in a 21st century or late 20th century whatever 21st century situation and so he's got to catch up and he realizes he's got to catch up but he still thinks like the man he's always been and it works for the character so we've seen time displacement done better and done right as opposed to what you're talking about here which is
1: yeah i mean for ellen ripley her friends and her lover got massacred maybe what, six weeks ago? Then she watched the next person she got close to and a bunch of Marines she was with and her adopted daughter die. I mean, she's been through the wars. This woman is still grieving, traumatized, and at war. She's not world weary and be like, oh, you're just my, you know, my my enemy that I have battled with over decades. No, this woman has been is is going through it right now. Right. So that that whole arc, that whole concept of her as the, uh, you know, I I've just done with this so much time that it is just weighed on my soul and I'm ready to move on. No, that's not where she is. And there's no way she's there. There's no way. So nothing about this rings true ever. It never could because this is not Ripley. Like you said, it's not her. This couldn't be her. It's impossible.
0: That's right. That's right. It doesn't ring true at all. And uh, I like how you let us look at the actual movie time in terms of her exposure to the alien and what that would have been like. And Mm -hmm. she definitely would have still have been full of adrenaline or anything. And then another thing, we talked about it before, but I'm going to throw it out, then I'm going to throw it to Bracey, about how the worst she had in the movie was like a cough. You know, like she maybe had, you know, beginning signs of a flu or whatever. Everybody Mm -hmm. else that got chest that you know, didn't have that kind of experience. But she's shaking it off, walking around a couple of days, like you said, looking up with people, whatever, like, you know, it's not that big of a deal. And this thing is growing right here in her lung tissue. And then when it, and then all up to the point where she throws herself off the balcony, she's not convulsing. She's not vomiting. She's not shaking or trembling. She's just having a conversation with not Bishop. And then she does the backwards Christ pose and that's it. And it's not even, uh, it's not, it just comes out. It's not even a burst. Uh, go ahead, Bracey. Thoughts on Ripley's death and her whole arc to
3: get up to that point. Okay. I've got another delicious hot take uh, that you inspired. Yeah. Uh, that it, it, it was further inspired because when I was watching the scene again, it's, it's been a little while since I watched the movie. And I was kind of thinking of like how she's holding it and how ridiculous it is when the chest burster comes out. And. Uh, and i was like how do you even know it's a queen you like look at a hazy image on on the on the echo you know monitor. heck i couldn't even really make heads or tails of what i was looking at on that screen she's like it's a queen how do you know you've never seen a queen chessburster before <laughs> uh, so this this so there's again y- you don't know if there were scenes that gave us information that were cut shot over all that because the the film was such a mess so here's here's my 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 thinking on that once I saw that and you know the because because the sexual aspect of e. Giger's art you know it looks like a penis so I, I figure this is this big phallus that's just erupted out of Ripley and she's grabbing it and she's she's grabbing it and she's taking it with her because she knows that she is screwed Sigourney <laughs> knows this screw her, so she's taking this giant penis down with her
2: the so God The oh is, so is evil. Well,
1: thank you yeah. for that image. I'm taking <laughs> that welcome. with me today.
3: <laughs> the Internet, Internet, you're welcome as well. Oh. I will say, I will Hold say that for Sigourney Weaver, uh, she is a really nice person. Even going through all this experience, and you can see interacting when you know she's she's signed on. She's a pro. She's doing it, but you can see she's she's not as invested as she was in Aliens. Uh, There are some key scenes where I feel like she really got into it better uh, with the Newt death thing and and some things like that. But there are other scenes where I, I don't feel like we're getting the best of her. But bless her heart, she saw this young director, David Fincher, working his ass off for this film to make the best production he could. And the reason he has a career is because she went public. And fought for this guy tooth and nail to be given another shot. Uh, she really went to bat for him, and it's it's on her clout and her credibility uh, that he eventually uh, got the fair shake to do seven uh, a little bit later. So good on her for that. As for her character, uh, this is not Ellen Ripley. Uh, we have Luke Skywalker and Jake Skywalker. This is Jane Ripley. <laughs> Uh, because, as you guys, as you so eloquently put, this is not the same character. She does not act like the same character. Uh, the time frame of the franchise, as Nemesis is rightly put out, this is not the same character. This is a world-weary character who has been beat down to nothing. And you know, you can say she's going through trauma. Speaking of which, where's her PTSD? Uh, she she should have that, especially if like now she's lost everything all over again. We don't get into that, and she just, she just gives up, and uh, and the movie wants her to give up. There was a thing they used to do uh, in films back between, say, like the, the 20s and 40s. It was a mandate that when you did a film that the good guys always win, you always eventually had sort of a happy ending, and the bad guys always paid. And uh, you would see things like this is very this is illustrated brilliantly in a James Cagney film where he's a mobster. And uh, one of his best friends or brother, I I don't remember, is a is a priest. And he notices all these the street kids are looking up for him. He's he's been caught by the cops. He's on death row. And, you know, he's like, hey, man, like if you don't want all these neighborhood kids end up like you uh, don't go out like I know you want to go out fighting and all this like uh, go out crying, go out like a coward so they don't look up to you. And heroically, Cagney's character does that. He brings himself down. His last act is to have everybody think far less of him than this awful, tough, super bad mobster is as a coward at the end. And it works. All the kids stop idolizing him. Now, obviously, this isn't a realistic depiction. Uh, So movies evolved. But what we see here is the antithesis of this. And something that we see happening so often, again and again, today, when you look at things like Star Wars, you know you have to kill the past, you got to get rid of all this stuff. This film is so utterly nihilistic; it offers you, the audience, no hope, and they wonder why it failed. So that like there's nothing to take from this. Not if if this had been like a standalone film of some sort, it would have been acceptable. But we have built on two previous films where this woman has triumphed against all odds. And to have her say, you've been a part of my life so long, I don't remember anything else, is such a give up and let me die movement when she was effectively going to give up and let herself die. And then she's not even a strong enough character to kill herself until the threat of these things making it to Earth. Like, no, nothing works about it. Uh, my understanding is even Lance Hangerson didn't like doing the scene, but he's like, eh, I, I guess I need to put a new wing on the house or something. <laughs> you know, all it seems like all the actors involved with it—they did it, but they didn't really like it, and so it doesn't play fair. And as I stated earlier, that scene was added in with a chest burster. They—they didn't even give the character a shred of dignity in her very last moment. I hate it.
0: You can't have momentum build up one way and then just go the other way. You can call it mm-hmm. subverting expecta- expectations. You can call it shocking your audience. You can call it trying something new. But over and over again, I want you to notice And when they do this in a threequel, it always blows up in their face. Superman 3, Matrix Revolution, Alien 3, we could go on and on, Jurassic Park 3. Every time they try to do that, if you've gotten to the point as a writer where you are narratively no longer invested in your premise, then it's time to let somebody else write something. Yeah. Because all you're going to do is live long enough to see yourself become the villain. And the final thing i say before I turn it over to Steve is you mentioned the uh, X-ray scene. I had to watch that over and over and over again before I actually saw where the creature was. Because the first time I saw it, I didn't see it at all. I I was like, I I, I kept
3: pausing it.
0: Yeah, I couldn't (laughs) find it. But it's what you just said that made me realize that once again, narratively, it was nonsensical because if we had seen maybe the headdress of a queen yeah we would seen the shape of the queen's head but how did she know it was a queen how was it possible that you that was a queen there's no way no especially when you cut out the queen chestburster thing there's no way you could have known that was a queen not possible But anyway, go ahead, Steve. Thoughts on Ripley's death and her stupid arc getting there.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think that pretty much says everything. Uh, First, I'm going to go and kind of build on something that uh, Nemesis said while I remember. And that is uh, this question. How long did it take for them to get to Furia? Um, We know that it took, uh, you know, what was it? uh, You know, 57 years or something like that for them to get uh, from there to Earth. Nobody ever mentioned how long it took for Ripley to get from, um, Hadley's hope, uh, over to furia. We, you know, she, for all, nobody's mentioned it. Like how long was I out? She never asked this, you know, we never, so we never know, um, for all we know that she's even farther out of time, uh, than, than she was before. And that is never expounded on. You know, we, we never see that. So that's another element of her arc that was completely ignored. And that could have been interesting if somebody had put the slightest thought into the into the lore or into the character. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to go for that. Uh, for the rest of it, yeah, I, I, my thoughts are very much along the lines of, of what Jeff said. And, in fact, I was going to say something similar, except uh, my example was going to be uh, a film that I know DT likes uh, very, very well. And that is Oblivion. Oh, uh, yeah. Yes. So you know, if you want to talk about that, that whole movie was about heroic sacrifices. And what is the uh, the, the poem that that they used when they talked about? How can a
0: man die better? Die better than face fearful gods in the uh, halls of his fathers and, his and the ashes of his gods? Yes.
2: Yes. You know I, it. It. that is what I wanted to see, and it was not in this movie. <laughs> it was not in this movie at all. Um, you know, her death should have been heroic. It should have been a big heroic sacrifice. It should have been a big F you to the alien. And it should have defeated her in some measurable way. And in, and none of that happens. And instead, what ends up happening is she gives up and she dies out of despair. I hate that she gives in to despair <laughs> after the last damn movie where her whole arc is about fighting her way out of despair. And then she falls back into it. And and that she And not even the adventure she's on. You know, gives her the lesson that, okay, I'm going to find a way to deal with this loss and move on. No, there's none of that. It's just I want to die because, you know, everything that that I loved was taken away from me, and I no longer care, and I have this thing inside me, and I'm just going to tell myself that I'm doing something heroic. No, you're not doing something heroic. You're doing something selfish. You're dying for selfish reasons. You're dying to end your pain not because you care in the world about any of these people or what happens to the alien when she gets out. You don't care. You, all you care about is entering your own suffering and that is defeatism. And I hate that. And that mm-hmm. is not Ellen Ripley. Uh, and mm-hmm. that... that And that's ultimately like one of the biggest things about this. It is an absolute betrayal. And before I kind of go on with this, um, I will mention the other betrayal, which is Bishop. uh, Now that we've actually gotten to this point, Um, you know, the thing that really got me with Bishop is, is that we only see Lance Henriksen as the real Bishop for maybe a couple of minutes. And then he just basically goes out. And the last that we see of Lance Henriksen, it is as a villain. He, they basically turned Lance Henriksen's character into a villain. I mean, the others have all gotten, you know, various shades of desecration. But Henriksen's was one of the worst because even though he's a different character, they, they brought the real actor back. And we never even saw the, the, Henriksen play the full character as Bishop. You know, he's never repaired or anything like that. You know, he just basically allowed to fail. And instead, you know, the last we see of Lance Henderson is as the bad guy in this movie. I despise that as much as everything oh. else. And, and, and on top of that, it also missed an opportunity because if they had fixed Bishop, um, not only would they have had an ally and a character we cared about, we could have gotten a confrontation between the two bishops and that would have been really awesome. And we could have gotten something out of that. And instead that's wasted too. Everything about this is a waste and everything um, dealing with Ripley's arc is, I mean, I'm with, I'm with Jeff. This is Jane Ripley. This is, you know, this is Ripley, believe it or not. And I don't believe it.
1: (laughs) It's it's, it's even worse than that, Steve. That's great. Later on, even though I, I still think, You'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure these movies aren't canon, so they're not considered part of the Alien franchise. Lance Henderson shows up again. He shows yeah. up as the founder of Waylon Mutani. Okay.
0: Now, now, wait, there. They're right there. Now, I, I've got a point there. Maybe, Nemesis, you did some research, but you guys can help me out. What Steve just said just made me realize, and what you all said about not bringing up the time. <clears throat> What companies do we have in America that are over 100 years old? How many companies do we have like that?
1: Uh, I could think of 10 or 15 off the top of my head, but...
0: Okay, but we do have some, but that's more the exception than the rule that they
3: yeah hang out for yeah. more
0: than a century, right? Yeah. Pretty rare. Right. So we have a background of Wayland yutani in the first film because they knew about the aliens, and Ash was sent there to protect the alien. And then it's 57 years... And Whale and Utani is still there. How?
3: And then we get to Alien Resurrection. That's 300 years spaced out. They're still right. there.
0: And they're still doing the same thing. So I'm asking myself was there a person behind it? Like Burke in Aliens, we got a focal point for we got basically the voice of the company in the film. Mm-hmm. But when you brought up the point about we don't understand the time differential between uh, LV426. And Fury one six one, then because the company knows all that kind of stuff too, because they send the Hazmat team at the end to try to capture Ripley because they want the Queen Alien. But how much time was it like? A month? Was it like a year? Was it like more suspended animation because she went in hypersleep just like she did the first time? And on that score, when she wakes up, she says something as trivial as trivial as. Yeah, I'll be sick for a couple of weeks. No, 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 no. When you violently come out of hypersleep, it's Uh a shock to your system. Because it's a shock to your system when you wake up and you're scared. If you had a running dream and you were fighting in your dream and you wake up, takes a minute for that adrenaline. So I'm like, you coming out of hypersleep like that would have not only accentuated your PTSD, but you would have been messed up in the head for a while. And then, you know, so, so that time factor, all of a sudden I'm seeing how salient of an issue that is. Because Wayland Utani covers the whole trilogy of these films, and then it gets over into the fourth one, which is how many years in the future is Alien Resurrection?
3: Three hundred years hence.
0: Yeah. See. Okay. I'm trying to understand. I'm trying to understand that. I don't oh. make any sense to me.
3: And not the only that, way that makes sense exactly. is that Wayland Utani is Earth. It is as if the giant mega corporation has taken over everything. That's the oh, only. No. Way.
0: The, yeah. the old, the old dude, that guy. Pierce played, succeeded, yeah. and actually lived 500 years. Maybe. Go ahead, mm-hmm. Nemesis. You were saying. I
1: was gonna say there's there's something weird there. It would be an interesting story to explore because then you have to ask yourself why is Wither. You know, it's almost like it's a fascist state on Earth now because Wither yeah, yeah. controls colonial Marines, and then 300 years later they're actually controlling military assets. I mean, there's something going on there. We mm-hmm. just don't ever get the full picture, and and yeah. I. I for one have not read enough of the expanded material, so I don't know if that's explained, but
0: well, uh, they're set up like Emperor Palpatine. Mm-hmm. Like they've got so much going on, and they've got clones of clones of clones, and at any point in time they could come back, or their initial goals are being carried on by the empire they created. Yeah. So it's kind of a shadow villain, but it's worth it, you know, exploring and explaining. But anyway.
3: Yeah, they're okay. surprisingly single-minded for such a long-lived company. Yeah. That's
0: right. That's right. That's right. Single minded. That's right. And I'm like, you can't tell me that by now you wouldn't have just sent somebody to get a Xenomorph egg. You know where they had. You always knew where they were. You know, just, you know anyway. Okay. So uh we're gonna call it there. Uh, because this movie makes us tired talking about it. But um, you know, it just it just it just fails on so many levels. It fails narratively. The one thing they got right was atmosphere. It looked hmm. pretty good. That's the one thing they got right. In terms of a second haunted house that we could buy. it really looked good. but other good than photography. Yes, yes. but other than that, narratively, it fails. It absolutely desecrates and spits on the characters. It breaks the momentum from the first movie. The actors didn't like it, and it wasted an incredible cast, turned them into disposable red shirts and uh, desecrated, you know, our greatest action hero. That's why most people just kind of blocked us out of their head cannon. I'm sorry to this day that we didn't, we weren't going to get Blomkamp's film, Alien mm-hmm. 5, which counted three and four as dreams. Yeah. So Ripley, Hicks and Nude would wake up and they would be like, what was that dream we had? So none of this would have happened. I really, really hope we got so close. We got so close we could taste it and then really Scott vetoed that in favor of his film. So we'll talk about that later. But all in all, you know, most of us agree, I've seen people try to defend this film. And like I said, if you're gonna defend it on atmosphere, I'm with you. Atmospherically, it, it it works for what it was trying to do. It was grimy, it was dirty, it was nasty, it was spooky, all those things, that worked. But it should have been another film. And as we've talked about the themes and the scenes and what the characters go through, you can really see uh, Frankenstein is the proper term that it was definitely piecemealed, but it lends itself to other mediums and other films, just not the film we got. So as a writer, always keep that in mind. And that's one of the reasons that we do, by the way, what we do, because bouncing your perspective off of your fellow writers only makes you better. It only opens your mind. It only stimulates, stimulates your creativity. It only makes you think about things that you never saw before. That's why we do this podcast. That's why we love to talk about this stuff because it elevates our worldview in every way possible. And that's where you want to stay as a writer. That's how you have a long career. That's how you stay fresh is by getting fresh perspectives, not trashing what's already been built. This is the only generation that does that. My father built on what his father did I built on what he did, but now we have a time where again, that line summed up in Last Jedi, spoken by Kylo Ren. Uh, Get rid of the past, kill it if you have to. Th- this film was the opening salvo of that thought. Hmm. You can see that it's it's absolutely ridiculous. All right, so we'll call it there. I wanna thank my co-host. Thank you so much, Nemesis. Oh, uh,
1: absolutely. Uh, love talking this stuff to you guys. And On your point with writers, it's, it's that thing. you know. We, we we play off each other and make each other strong, stronger. Iron sharpens iron. We don't tear each other down and break each other's swords. We just make each other stronger and sharper. So let's That's do
0: it. That's right. That's right. Thank you so much, Steve.
2: Yeah. Um, I, this this film really kind of gets me. And I'm going to be one of those people that pretended that it, that it never happened. <laughs> and I'll probably be watching the aliens after this to get this out of my mind like a fresh hour <laughs> But Uh, Yeah, it's one of those movies that's really interesting to talk about and it's kind of like one of those where you just kind of see institutionally how a movie fails and it's interesting for that an interesting failure for that reason and I I like interesting failures uh, as long as they're not this bad.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to have to have a palate cleanser after this one too. Thank you so much, Jeff.
3: Tune in next week when we leave the dreary nihilistic world of Alien 3 and step into the farcical world of Alien Resurrection where a camp (laughs) is on full effect.
0: (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Yes, that's going to be interesting. So thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Check out the other shows we have on United Capes Podcast Network. Thank you for watching this video on YouTube. Subscribe to the channel. And we will see you next time on the next episode of Sloppy Spoilers. We're...